1: Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter
2: through the noise. Real talk, black talk.
3: The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African Centered Encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com. Oh, you need out no of your hands. You can own
4: this I'm freaking hotel, except for one thing. You're black.
2: You're not
5: even a nigger. You're an African. Priceless African art, which was seized during the colonial era and displayed in European museums, could be on its way back to the continent, at least temporarily. The French government has said it will return art stolen during imperial conquest, and the British Museum is working with Nigerian officials to create a rotating exhibition of valuable artefacts that were looted in the 19th century. Our Africa editor, Fergal Keane reports.
6: I'm in the great court of the British Museum. In 1892, British troops entering the city of Benin in what is now Nigeria looted dozens of priceless bronze artefacts, some of which are now on display here at the museum. The Benin bronzes evoke a lost world. The kings, queens, warriors on display were created by a kingdom that lasted from the 13th century until troops rampaged through its palaces on a punitive expedition at the height of British imperial power. Godwin Obiseki is governor of Edo State, from where the bronzes were originally stolen. I met him as he visited London to negotiate with British museum
7: officials. That art represents the essence of us. I need to be able to explain certain things about my being, certain things as to why I am who I am and do things the way I do and think the way I do. And uh, that's why art is important, because it takes you back, the origins, the motivations behind them, helps you explain a bit, a lot much more about yourself and the society and the community.
6: The governor and museum officials from Nigeria are negotiating here so that some of the bronzes will return for an exhibition in the state capital, Benin City. That will happen as soon as a museum that can house and display them is completed properly. Hartwick Fisher is the director of the British Museum.
4: We see colleagues in Africa that we've worked with for a long time move into new projects, new institutions, new museums that are meant to make a difference in their own communities, in their cities, in their countries. And it's wonderful to be part of this movement and to work with them.
6: On one level, this is a debate about priceless pieces of art and where they really belong. But it's part of a much larger movement in Africa and the African diaspora to reclaim a stolen cultural heritage. It is about the right of Africans to possess their own history. Nowhere is this debate more haunted by the pain of the past than in Brussels, here at the Africa Museum, built by King Leopold II, whose crimes of exploitation cost the lives of millions in the Congo. This vast palace was built with the proceeds of Leopold's ill-gotten gains and was for decades a shrine to what the Belgians framed as their civilising mission in Congo. The director, Guido Grissils, told me about the multi-million euro refurbishment aimed at decolonizing the museum. Now the emphasis is on a more truthful view of a brutal past. And here too they're considering what to do about art stolen from Africa. Mr grissell 's main concerns are about museum capacity in Congo and the dangers of corruption. Do you trust the authorities in the Congo no. to treat anything that is brought back with the care it deserves? At this moment, no, absolutely not. I wouldn't trust any of uh, the people that are currently in charge. Not that they are of bad will, but just they don't have the facilities. There is no security system. A lot of these objects are worth a lot of money. People are paid very badly. What would you do if you were paid, you know, not even $100 a
5: month? Guido Grisells, director of the Africa Museum in Brussels, ending that report by Fergal Keene.
8: According to research by a professor at James Madison University, more than 100 people were lynched in Virginia from 1877 to 1927. Victims, mostly African-American, were hung beaten and shot by mobs. It spoke
9: to a time where um, some individuals had rights and some did not. Some were actually considered humans and some
8: were not. A resolution sponsored by Democratic Delegate Dolores McQuinn directs state agencies to place historical markers around the state, documenting where lynchings occurred. They'll also create an online database memorializing the victims. To
9: uh, make their lives relevant, grant them dignity, and then the families who are here, giving them a chance to uh, participate in something that would honor those who, who were lynched.
8: McQuinn says the resolution will help bring balance to our history and spur the telling of stories that have long been ignored. In Richmond, I'm Mallory Nopane.
10: Carry
8: me back
10: to old
11: Virginia There's where the cotton and the corn and taters grow There's where the birds warble sweet in the springtime There's where the old dark is hard and long to go
5: The discovery of racist pictures on Governor Northam's yearbook page has students and faculty at campuses around the state coming through decades of old yearbooks to see if similar pictures are published in them. The University of Virginia in Charlottesville is one of those campuses. It turns out that the very name of their yearbook, Corks and Curls, has been identified as minstrel slang. Cork for the burned cork used to blacken faces and curls for the crude Afro wigs that were a key part of the costume. The school's newspaper, the Cavalier Daily, has been looking into that as well as the content of the yearbook Books, the Managing Editor of The Daily, Abby Klukey, has been on that story, and she's with us now from Charlottesville, Virginia. Abby, thanks so much for joining us.
12: Thank you for having me.
5: Now, there's a history professor at Princeton, Ray Lynn Barnes, who's done extensive research into the history of blackface and minstrelsy. She wrote an op-ed for The Washington Post, and she said that the yearbook name, Corks and Curls, was itself a reference to blackface. And I wondered if you'd ever heard that before, or have you ever heard anybody on campus talking about that before?
12: I personally had never heard that before, and from what I've gathered, neither had any of the other students on grounds.
5: So Corks and Curls was first published in the 1800s. What does your reporting tell you about the origin of the name?
12: So after we found out that through the Washington Post article that the name was a reference to blackface and minstrelsy, I looked just on their website, and on that website, they had a page dedicated to the yearbook's history, and they said that in 1888, when the first issue was published, they came up with the name Corks and Curls and then they held a contest to determine the best rationalization of that name. And I spoke with the editor-in-chief of the Corks and Curls earlier this morning and she told me that this story came from a secondhand source. So she took that down to replace it with the preface from the original 1888
5: edition. And what does that say it's about?
12: So the explanation is that a cork represents an unprepared student who was called upon in class, but who remains silent like a corked up bottle. And a curl means a student who performed very well in class and who, when patted on his head by his professor, curleth his tail for delight thereat.
5: Hmm. Do you buy that?
12: Not really. <laughs> okay.
5: Now, you've been poring over years of additions, and what have you found?
12: So we went through basically all of the ones from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And we were marking ones that had instances of blackface and other examples of appropriation as well. And most of them were within the context of fraternity parties and things like that. But we did find one that was more sinister. It was what looked like to be a staged lynching. And it was a bunch of people dressed in black cloaks, holding shotguns, and they were surrounding a tree where what looked like a mannequin was hanging, and the mannequin's face was painted black.
5: Hmm. Wow. Well, how have students, faculty, and the administration reacted to all these discoveries in UVA's old yearbooks? How are people responding to
12: this? So the night that we found that particular image, we posted that to our Twitter, and people were quote-tweeting it and voicing their Discussed their horror, and some saying that they really were not surprised at all that we found something of that nature in these yearbooks. So professors have been voicing their opinions as well, saying that most people don't really understand the history of minstrelsy, and therefore blackface just was very rampant during the 70s and 80s, especially. And students also, especially students of color, like one I interviewed, said that he had just bought his graduation gown. And in that picture that we posted, they looked like they were wearing graduation gowns or something with hoods. So that reminded him of what he was about to be doing, graduating from this school that is deeply rooted in racism. Hmm.
5: Well, you know, to that end, though, I mean, UVA is founded by Thomas Jefferson, who owned hundreds of human exactly. beings. The university was built by enslaved labor. And then I think many people remember this very painful episode in 2017 where these neo Nazis, white supremacists were marching around in the area. I'm just wondering how this all or does it, you know, fit into conversations that people have been having about all of this this history?
12: I think it fits into the conversations that people have been having, um, and it really just goes to show that we need to be addressing our history and our really complicated past.
5: I understand that Corks and Curls folded in 2008 for yes. financial reasons because a lot of students weren't buying it, but mm-hmm. that the Alumni Association relaunched it. Now that there is this discussion about the name, is there a conversation about changing the name or What is the yearbook planning to do?
12: So as of right now, they're still active and they are still working on making the next issue for 2019. And I talked to the editor-in-chief and she said that there is conversation about changing the name. She's been in contact with university officials about how to do so, but change will not be immediate.
5: That's Abby Kluke. She is managing editor of the Cavalier Daily, which is at the University of Virginia. And she's with us now from Charlottesville. Abby, thanks so much for talking to us.
6: Medical Medical Apartheid. The dark history of medical experimentation on black Americans from colonial times to the
13: present. Virginia Governor Ralph Northam says he is not going anywhere. He's giving interviews on why he is not resigning over a long-ago party to which he admitted wearing blackface and a racist photo in an old yearbook. Here he is on CBS's Face the Nation.
11: Right now, Virginia needs someone that can heal. Uh, There's no better person to do that than a doctor.
13: No better person than a doctor. A Reminder that the governor is a doctor, that that racist photo was from Northam's med school yearbook. Well, this is food for thought for another doctor, Damon Tweedy. He wrote a book a few years ago called Black Man in a White Coat, A Doctor's Reflections on Race and Medicine. Dr. Tweedy teaches medicine at Duke University, and he joins me now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. What's your response to uh, that photograph with the guy in blackface and the other guy in Klansman robes? Um, And it was in a med school yearbook.
14: Yeah, you know, actually the first thought I had was kind of like what that might mean for the the patients. That medical school was in a community that at the time, even now, is about 40% African American. Hmm. So, um, you know, what does that mean for those patients that there's sort of these tacit acceptance of these um, attitudes Hmm. about race? uh, And what might that have meant for the patients then? Uh, And further, 1984 is not that long ago. I mean, people are still in practice. We were trained in 1984, and so we're not talking about, you know, ancient history.
13: For those who aren't familiar, lay out for me briefly, what is the history of tension between the American medical community and African Americans?
14: It dates back to the beginnings of our country in some ways. The most famous example in sort of modern times is the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, which um, basically was run by the U.S. Public Health Service and, you know, investigated the the natural history of syphilis uh, in African-American men. And, you know, even after treatment was available, the the, the, – the researchers never notified the men that they had syphilis or that there was treatment available. So it was, a, you know, the most egregious kind of example that we know of. But in some ways, it was just uh, follows a much longer history of, uh, of concerns, um, not just in the research realm, which, which is Tuskegee, but also in the clinical realm. Um, there's it's very much an oral history among African-American people that um, you often find that people have a, a concern or mistrust that they are being experimented upon or that the medical establishment is in some way doesn't have their best interest at heart
13: and when you were in med school back in the 90s was race ever addressed in the curriculum or in practical training and in your residency say
14: uh pretty limited i mean there's i mean during that time there was just starting to be those sort of conversations maybe like an hour out of a four-year curriculum hour or two think about that um you know, I think a lot of times people think that if you're a doctor, you're, you're very intelligent, you're sophisticated, and, um, and somehow you're not as susceptible to these, these issues of bias and racism in a way that other people might be. You know, being great in chemistry and physics and biology and, and getting into medical school doesn't in any way insulate you from all the things that impact society and impact the way that you see people and the biases that you can sort of harbor. So what we're trying to do in medicine now is really work to um, help people understand their perspectives, how they become informed, and how they may impact the kind of care that they deliver to people in the real world.
13: Is part of the reason that this has not been a historically central part of, of med school curriculum that, rightly or wrongly, the, the hope is that not being racist isn't something that should have to be
14: taught? But I think one danger that we have is that when, even when we use this example of the governor, Is that there's this idea of individual, like individual racism, and is he racist or is he not, and should he resign or not? It sort of obscures the larger context of like where he was educated, the experiences of other people around him, and how that influences him. Because of course, people have good and bad qualities, and people will support him and say, no, he's this, that, and the other. But that's really, in some ways, misses the point. It's much about a much larger discussion about the way our society shapes our ideas and attitudes about race and about class and all these things and and how we're impacted by that and how that in turn can impact the way that we see people, even if we don't intend to, even if, even if we're well-meaning. Right. And so I think that's, we have to have, sort of interrogate our own biases. I certainly, I mean, it's, I mean, I'm a black man, but I certainly have plenty of biases that I've had to address in the way that I see patients uh, throughout my career. And so it's not something that's only specific to white men. I mean, it's, it's everyone. Until we can have that kind of open discussion about it, uh, it's difficult to make progress. But I think we're beginning to sort of slowly break those things down. <laughs>
13: Dr. Damon Tweedy, he teaches medicine at Duke University, and he is the author of Black Man in a White Coat, A Doctor's Reflections on Race. Dr. Tweedy, thank you.
14: Thank you. Black babies cost less.
10: Bettina dixon Jenkins' firstborn, Cole, died in her arms just minutes after he was born. His twin, Ava, died shortly after her birth, a few hours later. Because the Evanston woman went into labor just four months into her pregnancy, the baby's lungs were not developed enough for them to survive. Just
15: seeing my first born and watching him slip away at the same time was, I mean, it was unreal. And then trying to cope with that and then going through the same thing again, losing my daughter. I mean, I just, I'd never felt pain like that.
10: At the twins' death, they became an illustration of a grim phenomenon. Black babies are more than twice as likely as whites or the overall population to fail to live past their first birthday, and Illinois is among the states where that racial disparity is greatest.
9: We know that there is a very stark disparity gap in which 34% of um, Black African-American infants during a sort of a two-year average, did not make it to their
5: first
10: birthday. Tasha Green-Cruzat is president of Voices for Illinois Children, an advocacy group. She says battling the racial gap in infant mortality is a high priority for her organization. Green-Cruzat pointed to several studies indicating that racism may be at play.
16: When it comes to stress in African-American women, there's a study that was done where they pretty much concluded that the accumulation of experiences of a, of a woman, of an African American woman, the racial discrim- uh, discrimination that she experiences produces chronic stress, and it and it brings on problems. It brings on and and constitute uh, risk factors.
10: State Representative Mary Flowers, a Chicago Democrat, has introduced several related bills.
5: Stress is something that's inherent. It's been carried on from generation to generation. Being disrespected is stressful. Being disrespected at work or the environment that you live in, the conditions that you have to work, all kinds of things cause stress on the mom that cause her to have a miscarriage and cause her baby to die.
10: One of the issues that both the March of Dimes and Voices for Online Children support is an expansion of Medicaid insurance. Green Cruzat notes that a high percentage of African Americans have Medicaid. March of Dimes wants the time mothers are covered extended, and Green Cruzat says the kinds of services covered, such as maternal care and doulas to assist women during and after pregnancy, should be expanded. A spokeswoman for Governor J.B. Pritzker did say he wants to expand health care for all Illinoisans. Green, Cruzette has another idea.
16: Definitely there needs to be some type of training when it comes to like sensitivity training um, that doctors need to have when they are take care of women of, of color. I think that that is definitely something that needs to be um, closely looked at
10: dixon Jenkins, the woman who lost her twins early, went into pregnancy in fear because her mother had lost a baby and a sister had an infant born preterm. She doesn't know whether race played a factor in losing her children. She did have a series of problems with the pregnancy, like extreme back pains, but doctors assured her that everything about the pregnancy was normal. dixon Jenkins said after the loss of her babies, she found it difficult to think ahead.
15: Not just the loss of the babies at the time, it was the loss of everything that we had hoped for them, the loss of what we imagined for our family.
10: But two years after the loss of her twins, she got pregnant again, this time with the aid of high risk pregnancy specialists. She now has a four year old daughter and a two year old son, the baby she and her husband Nathan dreamed of before she learned she was pregnant with Avon Cole. I'm Maureen McKinney.
17: And why do innocent people go to jail in America? In 2017, 139 people were exonerated, according to the National Registry of Exonerations. Well, one answer is forensic science. For decades, police have relied on forensic science to convict and imprison alleged criminals. But in recent years, scientists have begun to challenge the field's reliability. Take... Blood splatter analysis, for example. There's something you probably don't think about much, right? But it's used a lot in court, like looking at where blood splattered as a clue to who committed a crime and how. But in 2009, the National Academy of Sciences said the uncertainties with it were enormous. Another coming under great scrutiny is bite marks as evidence. Welcome to the marvelous world of criminal forensics, right? People who spend their days analyzing blood splatters and bite marks. Uh, But we'll discuss this now with NBC News reporter Jonathan Shuppie. He focused on criminal justice and forensic science for a report, a piece about the dubious nature of a range of forensic techniques, including bite marks and even sometimes fingerprints, shoe prints too. And he wrote about their connections to a slew of wrongful convictions Jonathan, thanks for coming on the show. Welcome to WNYC.
2: It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
17: To start sort of big picture, does the scientific community feel differently about forensic
2: sciences than the law enforcement community? No doubt. That's where the big divide exists. Um, Because of DNA and what we see of forensics on TV, we expect other methods to be just as definitive. But that's not the case. And scientists, for many years, they talk about doing this – Speaking largely unheard for decades about what they find to be a lack of scientific rigor in a lot of forensic science that is used in courtrooms today. Would you like to take any one of the, these
17: techniques and tell a story of how it contributed to a wrongful conviction? Sure.
2: Um, there's, There's basically two – I would say, categories of forensic science that has come under question. The more controversial ones are the ones that you mentioned, bite marks and blood spatter. Then there's more commonly used ones like ballistics, shoe prints, fingerprints. And in in our story, what we uh, focused on was in particular a story about Brad Jennings, a Missouri man who was convicted of murdering his wife. And initially when his wife's body was found – at their home, dead of a gunshot wound to her head, the coroner and local prosecutor agreed that it was a suicide. Flash forward a few weeks, and the dead woman's sister contacts the Missouri State Highway Patrol and says, "I think that actually her that Brad killed her." And the inexperienced, at least in blood spatter evidence, of sergeant assigned to the case took a look at the photos of the crime crime scene, saw one drop of blood on the – well, there was a lot of blood. But he focused on one drop of blood on the dead woman's hand and decided that there should have been what they call blowback on that hand if she had indeed pulled the trigger and taken her own life. Based upon that one drop of blood – That spurred a a theory that he took to court and used to convict Brad Jennings based upon the doubts of um, whether she actually killed herself and he spent several decades in prison wrongly. How was he exonerated? He was exonerated because the blood spatter evidence fell apart upon further scrutiny. He got some good legal help and some lawyers found – as, as w- is often the case, it isn't necessarily the forensic science that is found to be lacking initially in exonerations. It's another legal tactic that is used to undermine a prosecution. In this case, there was evidence withheld from the prosec- from the uh, defendant, Mr. Jennings. And from there, they got a chance to re look, look again at the blood spatter evidence and, and it fell apart. It ended up being – the, the sergeant's original theories fell apart under further scrutiny. I've
17: learned at least one thing already from this segment. The word is spatter, not splatter. Exactly. <laughs> um, another one is bite marks. I see that's pretty prominent in your story. Um, when do bite marks come up in criminal investigations when it doesn't involve a dog?
2: And uh, what's, how has that been discredited? Bite marks are, um, as you may imagine, is when – are typically a murder victim or a sexual assault victim and often sometimes uh, child abuse victims are um, found to have marks that the theory goes have were made by somebody's mouth and so bite uh, a specialty emerged within the forensic dentist community in the early 1970s that you can take a bite mark on a body and match it to somebody's specific mouth set a uh, pattern of teeth mm-hmm. s- similar to a fingerprint. And that has been – slowly been undermined and we um, – there's been just last uh, – in the last couple of months, Texas – in Texas, a gentleman named Stephen Mark Chaney was exonerated because the people who originally – the forensic dentist who originally said that he, with 100 percent certainty, this guy made this mark on the victim's body, changed their mind, recanted their testimony based upon what we now know about bite mark evidence and said – this is – we, we – it's not a perfect match and he was – it was a long process. A lot of these exonerations take years and years and years to unfold and he in December finally after three decades in prison was, exo- was released from prison and also formally exonerated. Listeners, I wonder if anybody who works in forensics or in law
17: enforcement or maybe a criminal defense attorney um, wants to weigh in. On this, as we're talking to Jonathan Shupi from NBC News, who did an investigative report on the use and abuse of forensic techniques in criminal investigations, 212-433-WNYC, 433-9692. And I understand there's some, some Washington politics history here. Um, such as they tried to take a new look at this and offer new kind of more conservative guidelines for some of these forensic
2: techniques during the Obama administration? Correct. As I mentioned from the start of this segment, this has been something that scientists have been uh, sound, trying to sound an alarm on for many years, many decades. But, and, and as you mentioned, the National Academies of Science report came out in 2009 formally, alerting the public of these many reservations that they had about what we call forensic science. And that triggered a couple of things in Washington. For one, um, President Obama formed what was called the National Forensic Science Commission to figure out what was wrong and suggest ways of correcting it. His own um, science advisory group um, known as PCAST came out with a a subsequent report that – Sounded the alarm in many different ways that the original National Academies of Science did. And even after that report was publicized, Obama's own Department of Justice rejected Loretta Loretta Lynch, the attorney general at the time, said that she wasn't going to accept a lot of their recommendations. And what happened was it fell into the Washington bureaucracy morass and nothing really
17: happened. And then it came out the other end once Trump was president and Jeff Sessions was attorney general, I understand. Um, And here is a clip of Rod Rosenstein, who we seem to only ever hear talking about the Russia investigation. Uh, But here's Rod Rosenstein, deputy attorney general, at the National Symposium on Forensic Science in August of last year.
18: Our critics argue that these methods have not undergone sufficient testing or they involve too much human interpretation and judgment to be accepted as scientific methods. But those arguments are based on the false premise that a scientific method needs to be instrument-based, automated, quantitative, excluding human interpretation and judgment. That effort stems from an erroneous view, overly narrow view, of forensic science and its application in the courtroom. The Federal Rule 702 uses the phrase scientific, technical, or other Specialized knowledge, which makes clear that it is designed to permit the introduction of testimony that calls on skills and judgment beyond the knowledge of a layperson and not merely the work of scientists in laboratories
17: so that 's really interesting. Rod Rosenstein, as Deputy Attorney general,
2: defending the way forensic evidence is used in court. I think it's essentially what uh, R- Rosenstein is saying at that in that speech is that. The scientists shouldn't be telling us what to do. We Prosecutors know what we're doing. Law enforcement has been relying on these techniques for a really long time and let us do the work. Um, so
17: how much is the problem with forensic sciences due to human error as opposed to limitations of the techniques themselves if they're done well?
2: Right. That's a really good question. And there is a large – a significant portion of cases in which forensic science is found to be – Um, used wrongly or used to wrongly convict somebody in which simply it's bad application by somebody who doesn't have the training or the the ability to perform it. Let's take a phone call. Mike
17: in Queens. You're on WNYC. Hi, Mike.
5: Hi. uh, My question is basically what about the other side of this, which is the defense attorneys? How have the defense attorneys been approaching this, and how did the defense attorney handle this forensic evidence? For the person that was wrongly convicted, I would think there'd be a great constituency uh, to advocate for this from the standpoint of defense attorneys.
2: That's a really good question, and there's a couple of answers to that. One is that a lot of people who end up being wrongly convicted based upon forensic science or other other ways, they don't have the greatest of defense counsel. We have a crisis within this country within this country of public defenders being underpaid and overworked and can't spend enough time on cases to really vet and scrutinize the forensic uh, science that goes into any one case. And here is a criminal defense
17: attorney calling in, Alan in Manhattan. You're on WNYC. Hi, Alan.
1: Hi, Brian. Thanks for taking my call. You've got a great show. It's Thank for you. A long
17: time. Thank you very much. What's
5: your so, question? So,
1: um, What I would like to point out is, uh, and you brought it up at the beginning of this segment, is the real um, void between what I call real science and forensic science. And uh, the example I like to give is a drug company that wants to put a a drug on the market. They have to do extensive studies They do their own internal validations and then they have to submit it at some cost to the fda and the fda people then review it they have scientists there to look everything over and you have matters of life and death where if a drug might get a- a validated and approved for market you don't want it to kill somebody that's not the case with forensic science the companies the organizations the state agencies that propound these forensic science methods through their own validations. And they often offer those validations as proof that their product, their method, is up to par, um, but they have a self-interest in it. And often when there are challenges to it, uh, and I don't want to name specific companies, um, but it's out there in the news. Um, for example, with DNA, the uh, company's owners will claim Uh, Proprietary interest and courts will buy into that and say they're not going to risk exposing the source code or the methodol the base for the methodology uh, in in regard requiring it to be released to the defense because that could compromise the company's business interests. Now I don't ever understand that in the context of Mm -hmm. matters of liberty and in some states life or death, but that's a vast discrepancy. And if we had a system in states and or on the federal level where there was an agency similar to the FDA that was required to validate forensic science methods would be a whole different body.
17: So a let me ask you, Alan, and, and Jonathan, you as a reporter, um, where DNA evidence fits into this conversation. Because we were talking before about things like, Blood spatters and bite marks, you could see how humans could misinterpret um, what those things actually mean when they 're figuring out whether a crime was committed and by whom. Um, DNA is supposed to be rock solid it 's DNA it
2: identifies the individual, not the case. Jonathan It turns out that is not the case when DNA becomes used more frequently and is become and becomes more powerful. What is happening? And um, the attorney on the line will, I'm sure, be able to back this up. We're at the point now where we can pick up multiple people's DNA off a doorknob. And so we've graduated from the fairly straightforward, quote-unquote, single-source DNA that might come from a rape kit or from a stabbing. And we're talking about a burglary in which detectives are able to lift DNA off of um, a doorknob and then – trying to figure out whose DNA is within that mix and which is represented so much so that they, this person might be included as a possible suspect. And that's a really hard thing to do, and I think that's what he was talking May about. May I interject dr- on that, Brian? Yes, of course. Go ahead, Alan.
1: So uh, Johnson raises some really good points in there. First of all, there is something called transfer. So, for example, if I was to shake your hand, I was in the studio, right?, And I was to then go out and commit this burglary Jonathan's talking about. Mm -hmm. I could actually have your DNA on my hand. And if I jiggle the door knob and get in and your DNA happened to be on file, you could be identified as the suspect and not me.
17: I'm not shaking your hand.
10: (laughs) Hitler had the supreme fascist state. And what was he worried about in Europe and in Germany? He was worried about white genetic annihilation.
19: We don't build massive buildings. We don't build cultural buildings. Our values today are no longer religious. Our philosophy is semantic. Our philosophy is to do with words, not visions. Not myth, but reason, and so We build according to the words that we like today, cost-effective, business-like, profitable. These are the words that I work with every single day. I no longer think in the terms of glory, of monumentality, of beauty. No, we live in a practical age and architecture has adjusted itself to our age.
0: Well, that was Philip Johnson accepting the first ever Pritzker Architecture Prize in 1979. The architect was 98 years old when he died in 2005, and his legacy is visible across North America in the many significant buildings he left behind. They include New York's Seagram Building, His glass house in Connecticut and the building I'm speaking to you from right now, the Canadian Broadcast Centre in Toronto, Broadcasting Centre in Toronto. But Philip Johnson was a complex man with a dark past. He was inspired by and he worked with the Nazis. Mark Lamster tells the story in his book, The Man in the Glass House, Philip Johnson, architect of the modern century. Mark Lamster is the Dallas Morning News architecture critic. He's also a professor in the architecture school at the University of Texas, and he joins me from Dallas. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. So let's uh, let's start with, he, he was an American. He was born in the States. Well, tell me about his early life. Very rich young man.
20: Johnson had like your classic sad little rich boy life. Uh, he came from a well-to-do family in Cleveland, but he had a fairly unhappy childhood. He bounced around from school to school, uh, and then it t- he went to Harvard, and it took him seven years to graduate. Uh, he had bipolar disorder, and so he had these moments of... Uh, where he was up and felt like he was on top of the world and a man above the mob and a genius above all, and correspondingly these troughs of intense depression. And he was also discovering himself as a a gay man uh, at a time when that was not acceptable. Uh, So there were always these sort of many different Johnsons within Philip Johnson conflicting and and later in life, you can sort of read in his personality that, that a d- certain duality of who he was uh, was always a sort of a part of him.
0: He, he was gay. Was he out? I mean, it was the 30s.
20: Well, it, it, even in the 20s, he attended Harvard in the 20s. Uh, he was not out, out, because no one could be out. But there was a, um, especially in New York and jazz age, there was a... Uh, gay culture. And he was very much a part of a group of gay arts and cultural figures who are sort of reinventing what it meant to be modern in dance, in art, in architecture, in all of these subjects. And then, of course, he would travel uh, back and forth to Germany. He was very interested in Germany uh, in the Weimar years. And that we know from like the, you know, the show Cabaret, which was very much out. And there he could really be truly out for the first time in public. But back in America, he couldn't be and wasn't until really the 80s.
0: He was involved in the early years of the Museum of Modern Art in New York. What was he doing?
20: He becomes the founding uh, architecture curator, the, uh, the chairman of the Department of Architecture Uh, and sort of becomes the first American architecture curator. And in that position, launches a series of uh, extremely important shows, the first that introduces European modernism to the United States, a show today known as the International Style Show. That wasn't what it was actually called, but that's what people know it as. And here he uh, brings figures like Le Corbusier and Mies van der Rohe, and Walter Gropius to America uh, and shows them off for the first time. Uh, But it also sort of uh, strips that modern architecture of its progressive values and ideas, you know, at the height of the Depression. Uh, He's not really interested in housing and uh, what architecture can do for the public good. He's interested in architecture as art.
6: Mm -hmm. And
20: uh, Johnson was hailed as a maestro in the New York Times and a boy wonder and a genius and is really leading this extraordinary career as an architecture curator. And then he sort of just uh, decides to throw it all away to become basically an alt-right nationalist political figure.
0: Well, that's Go there, okay, because I've got a clip I want you to hear. There's a Canadian who plays a big role in his life, uh, a Hamilton, Ontario priest named Charles Coughlin. He goes on to become a national radio phenomenon in the United States during the Depression. This is a little bit of Father Coughlin and a warning. It's very anti-Semitic.
19: The system of international finance, which has crucified the world,
6: ...to the cross of depression was evolved by Jews for holding the peoples of the world under control. This official paper prints
19: the names of the Jewish bankers who helped to finance the Russian Revolution. I was shocked that the resources of this nation should be employed against the Hitler government on behalf of German Jews to settle an
21: internal problem in Germany
0: shocking words. Uh, Mark Lamster, what was the relationship between Philip Johnson and the man we just heard, Father Coughlin?
20: Very close. Johnson became an advisor to Coughlin, Coughlin uh, in the 30s. Coughlin, sort of an incredibly popular figure, radio figure in the United States at that time, with a tremendous audience, uh, much like Rush Limbaugh today, uh, although more virulently anti-Semitic, and so, essentially, Johnson walks away from the Museum of Modern Art, right? We're in the Depression. It's the beginning of the Roosevelt era. And Johnson wants to start his own fascist political party. He first tries to uh, glom onto uh, Huey Long, the so-called Kingfish in Louisiana, sort of the dictator governor of Louisiana. And Kingfish isn't really interested in having Johnson's assistance Uh, And Johnson eventually finds his way up to Kovlin uh, and becomes sort of his – one of his consiglieres. Uh, And Johnson is fully into this sort of anti-Roosevelt, anti-Jewish, hyper-nationalist belief system, Uh, fascist, frankly. Uh, And he tries to advise Coughlin, who is starting his own political party and runs a political candidate uh, against Roosevelt in the 1936 election. Johnson designs this very fascistic uh, dais. For a massive rally held by Coughlin in Chicago with eighty thousand people, it looks very much like the Nuremberg rallies the Nazis are holding in, in Germany. And that's not a coincidence. Johnson, no, Johnson goes to visit those. He's very much inspired by those. Um, so what happens is sort of Coughlin's nineteen thirty six campaign, you know, falls apart. Uh, Roosevelt is so popular at this point. Um, and Johnson actually turns at this point to really become a tool of the Nazi state. He's fully invested in the full uh, Nazi catalog of eugenics, uh, political ideas, etc. cetera. Uh, and he's useful to them. The Nazi state wants America to stay out of European affairs as it conquers you know, all of Europe. And to have uh, Johnson the sort of figure who can help mainstream fascism in the United States uh, through propaganda, through providing it with mailing lists, uh, various other intellectual activities, it, it's very appealing uh, to the Nazi state. And he becomes embroiled with it. He's meeting uh, with very high-level figures in the Gestapo, in the Foreign Service, the German ambassador to the United States to try and promote the sort of American, an American fascism. Really disturbing.
0: You you got your hands on some FBI documents. What did you learn?
20: The FBI begins following him quite quite early. And of course, their concern is that he's taking money from the German state uh, and acting as a German agent in the United States. What's interesting is that many of, or most of Johnson's, Accomplices and friends in pro-fascist circles are arrested and charged on sedition because they are taking money from the German state without declaring it. But Johnson avoids it because he's so personally wealthy that he doesn't really need to accept foreign money. So he can propagandize for the German state on his own dime. Kind of makes him perfect for Germany, right? They don't even have to pay for it. But this allows him to continue on and avoid trial because really he's just – this is just his First Amendment right to be a jerk.
0: What do you think motivated him to embrace Nazism?
20: That's a really interesting question. I mean I think he was a product of uh, a conservative family. So some of those prejudices were ingrained in him. But he was also someone who had this sort of edible streak, and also this incredible uh, streak of insecurity and desire for attention, and a desire to sort of rattle people's cages. And I think this is a part of it. sort of comes out of that all that molded together creates who he is.
0: He traveled to Europe just before Nazi Germany invaded Poland in 1939. What was he doing there?
20: He was acting as a journalist for the house organ of Father Coughlin's political organization, ostensibly really just being a tourist and watching with admiration as Germany begins its path to conquering Europe and he follows the Wehrmacht into Poland and to him it's this, this stirring spectacle Germany like rolling through Poland it's it's really quite appalling
0: How does Johnson go about rehabilitating his reputation after the
20: war? Well this is when Johnson becomes an architect right Um so Pearl Harbor comes, and Johnson realizes that this whole fascist direction has been a giant disaster and wrong, and he needs to reinvent himself. And um, This is when he goes to Harvard to become an architect, uh, to stay out of the limelight for a few years and try and reinvent who he was. I think he's in some ways very genuinely sorry for, you know, his foolish behavior, but on the other hand, opportunistic and cynical about it, which is sort of the two sides of the coin that Johnson always plays. Um, so he actually spent some time in the military. It's just the saddest moment of his career, sort of uh, drafted into the military. But of course, he can't do anything of any import because of his history. So he basically sits worrying that he is going to be you know, charged with sedition, sort of really terrible, awful moments for him. But he has these friends, Jewish, many of them, many of them virulently anti-Nazi or um, just obviously uh, Americans. And because they adore him and they love him, uh, they're willing to forgive him because he's so charming, because he's so brilliant. Uh, And to look past this period that he's gone through, Uh, or not even gone through it, I think that's a little passive. I mean, he was actively, you know, campaigning. But they're willing to look past it and help him reinvent himself. Uh, They're willing to forgive him because he's so charming, because he's so brilliant. DFL
4: Congresswoman Ilhan Omar apologized today for several Twitter exchanges over the weekend that have been widely condemned as hateful and anti-Semitic. The apology came after a call from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. It's a fast-moving story today, but our political reporter, Brianna Bierschbach, is here to keep us updated on the latest. Good afternoon. Hey, Tom. This all started yesterday on Twitter. Catch us up on that first.
22: Yeah, that controversy began Sunday night when Omar responded to a tweet from journalist Glenn Greenwald. Greenwald was taking House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy to task for threatening punishment against Omar for her criticism of the Israeli government's treatment of the Palestinians. Uh, Just for some context, Greenwald tweeted, It's stunning how much time the U.S. political leaders spend defending a foreign nation, even if it means attacking free speech rights of Americans. Omar pretty quickly responded to that tweet with the comment, it's all about the Benjamins baby, with a a musical note emoji. And Mm -hmm. that was quoting a 1997 Puff Daddy song uh, and referring to $100 $100 bills. Uh, In a subsequent tweet, she was a little bit more specific about what she meant. She said it was a group called the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, which is a prominent pro-Israel group that was fueling Republican support for Israel.
4: So tell us about the uh, response to that on Twitter.
22: Well, the backlash was pretty quick. Uh, Pretty immediately, one of her freshman Democratic colleagues, Max Rose from New York, said that they were Deeply hurtful to Jewish people. Um, also, someone, another colleague from the from New York, uh, chair of the Judiciary Committee, said something pretty similar. Also, Chelsea Clinton weighed in, saying that members of Congress should not traffic in anti-Semitism. And uh, Wyoming Republican Representative Liz Cheney, who is the number three Republican in the House, said she should be removed from the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Also, national Jewish groups and local Jewish groups weighed in, saying that these comments were danger to Jewish people, and also likened them to pe- to comments made by people like David Duke.
4: So the pressure has been building here on Representative Omar all day, including from this afternoon House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, right?
22: This afternoon she did condemn the comments and asked Representative Omar to respond and and apologize immediately, which hadn't happened. And I think really after Pelosi did make that comment, you saw outpouring from many other Democratic uh, members of Congress and, and also Democrats from Minnesota as well.
4: So tell us about Omar's response then.
22: She issued a tweet, which is now her kind of form of communicating with the public, Uh, and she said, anti-Semitism is real, and I'm grateful for Jewish allies and colleagues who are educating me on the painful history of anti-Semitic tropes. Uh, But then she also said, my intention is to never offend my constituents or Jewish Americans as a whole. We have to always be willing to step back and think through criticism. Uh, So this was a part of a longer, a pretty long response, but she definitely apologized and and is trying to uh, move on from the comments.
4: Or you mentioned Twitter as a primary way of communicating for her and so many public figures. Uh, But this isn't the first time she's uh, been criticized for tweets, is it?
22: Yeah, just last month, a 2012 tweet from her resurfaced where she had said that Israel hypnotized the world and accused them of evil doings. This was pulled up. um, People have been going back through her old tweets uh, and she initially defended it, but then she did say that she used unfortunate words, and those were her feelings at the time. I don't expect this is the last time. Something on her Twitter feed, though, might cause some discussion.
14: Our
4: Brianna Birschbach, thank you very much. You're welcome. More reporting from Brianna on this story, including links to the original tweets at nprnews.org.
11: So you keep confusion going. Dislocation is one of the major ones now. Keep people moving because they have found out over a period of time The people who are constantly forced to move from one place to another. Either the water is rising and they have to move. Or in some cases, the water is not rising, but the prices are rising in the area where they are. And they can no longer stay there because they can't afford to be where they are. So they raise the prices on everything. They foreclose on the house that a person is in. That person has got to move because they have found that when people are constantly moving, they are dislocated and they are angry and they are frustrated and they can't get their bearings. They can be almost driven insane by having to do that. And then they become completely dysfunctional. And then they are totally vulnerable. So that's one of the major strategies for misusing people. Keep them on the move.
17: And the Trump administration's 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act includes a tax break to encourage economic development in distressed parts of the country designated as opportunity zones. We just mentioned this with the governor with respect to Long Island City. This provision had bipartisan support, including New Jersey Senator and 2020 presidential hopeful Cory Booker. But the fact that the Amazon deal in Long Island City would have qualified, though they didn't go for it, highlights a potential problem with the program, and the fact that Amazon had to announce that it wouldn't participate highlights the strength of the pushback. Here with us to talk more about what opportunity zones are and their impact, I'm joined by WNYC investigative reporter Anjali Comet and by Caleb Melby, Bloomberg financial investigations reporter. Welcome both of you this morning. Thank you. And Thanks for having me. Angelina. Your story on this, you included a tweet by a tax lawyer saying one of his clients called Opportunity Zones, quote, the greatest thing for real estate in like the last hundred years. Why?
16: <laughs> That's right. Um, you know, when you look at the way Opportunity Zones are structured and like you just mentioned, they're supposed to be um, a way of funneling private money into low-income areas to spur development. And that's the idea. But the way it works is it's really just sort of targeting people with capital gains, which is a very small percentage of people, about 6.5% of taxpayers have capital gains. Um, And so it's the wealthiest Americans, and they're supposed to put their money into opportunity zones. Now, the thing is, You're supposed to invest the money in these zones. Now, there's different sort of regulations that have come out that even limit how much of the money needs to actually be in the zone. The latest regulations, you can set up an opportunity fund and just put in 63% of the money needs to go into the actual zone. But initially, when this came out, the idea that you would direct funds to a particular area meant the kinds of businesses that would benefit the most are those that are rooted in place. And that's real estate. You know, nothing's better at being in one place for a really long time than a building.
17: So, Caleb, is there a suggestion uh, that this is not just good for development in uh, low-income areas but that it's somehow a weasel deal for developers?
18: Well, yeah, definitely. So what we can say is of the 8,700 opportunity zones across the country, most of them uh, are poor um, or distressed and could use some investment, um, but some aren't. And there's, there's really no reason that you would, like, make a bet. On uh, some of those more distressed ones, unless you thought they are were already up and coming, expressly because the the uh, breaks themselves are tied to capital gains. So uh, you're not going to be able to take advantage of those breaks unless your investment uh, increases in value over the course of its lifetime before you sell it. So you're re- so people are currently really trying to target uh, already gentrifying or up and coming areas when they're trying to figure out where to put that money.
17: Huh. Is the Kushner family? investment in beachfront property in Long Branch in New Jersey, an example of this?
18: So, uh, that's another fun thing about the Opportunity Zone program is there's very little, uh, uh, transparency into, uh, who's taking advantage of it. Uh, so when we look at the Kushner projects in, uh, Long Branch on the beachfront there, we don't get to see whether or not they're taking advantage of the program or not. But, uh, given the fact they are doing ground up development on hotels and other stuff there and it qualifies, uh, they'd really be foolish not to take advantage.
17: Yeah. And, actually, who designated which areas get to be opp- opportunity zones? Um, it was left up to the states. I was just asking the governor, why Long Island City if it's a gentrifying up-and-coming area already? And, you know, he didn't have a great answer except to say generally that it has been a depressed area, so more is better.
16: I mean, it has been a depressed area, but now the median income there is $138,000. So to call it a distressed area today would be really stretching the imagination. But it's the governors of every state who had... Uh, who were given the chance to designate a quarter of their low-income census tracts as opportunity zones. So Empire State Development did this, and when I spoke to them, they said they did this in coordination with different regional and city economic development councils. So the local EDC was definitely involved. Um, And what's interesting about New York, and Caleb alluded to this, is that You know, not only were, you know, a large number of depressed areas selected, but it's also a lot of very gentrifying areas. And one of the things about the rules is they allowed you to designate a certain number, a small percentage of zones that are not low income, but are next to low income areas. They're sort of contiguous zones. So the Long Island City zone, where um, the Amazon headquarters is supposed to come up, is one of those areas. It's
17: next to, for example... Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Congressional District. It's not in her district, but it's adjacent to her district, which is a low-income area.
16: That's right. And it's next to a very large public housing project. And there's 14 of these zones in New York City that are contiguous, you know, also the Navy Yard in Brooklyn.
17: Um, So, Caleb, what, what did you find in your reporting about how Amazon would qualify for this tax break in Long Island City?
18: Yeah, we uh we were very interested because that Long Island City track um uh it- as was just said, I mean, the median household income there is 138,000. And if you put all of those zones on a map, it's actually the richest one. And, uh, when ESD, uh, first came out, Empire State Development, the state agency first came out and explained how they picked these zones, they never made it clear, never even mentioned that they had interacted with New York City Economic Development Corp, which was at the same time, uh, negotiating with Amazon over, uh, various sites, including this one in Long Island City. Another one of those contiguous tracks in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, as well, that also got designated as an Opportunity Zone. Um, And what what we found was uh, that there was uh, some very clever overlap uh, offered by the New York City EDC officials with uh, places they were pitching Amazon and places they were selecting as Opportunity Zones, even if uh, yeah, the median household income in those zones uh, was kind of uh, eyebrow-raising.
17: Anjali, we're talking about Long Island City, obviously, because it's a flashpoint with Amazon, and it's of questionable qualification for this program, giving tax breaks to developers. But what are some of the other New York City opportunity zones?
16: I mean, there's over 300 of them in the city. So there, 300? there are 300, 306, I think, neighborhoods. In the city. <laughs> so there's census tracts, and so there is a large number of them that are in neighborhoods that could use the investment. Large parts of the South Bronx, uh, parts of Brownsville, um, but also a lot of areas where there has been a lot of recent economic development, a lot of construction activity. There's a lot of overlap with the mayor's zoning plans. And, you know, the EDC said they did select areas where there is also potential for development. So in some ways, that makes sense. But there are questions about what this means in terms of actually bringing benefits to people who live in these communities, who this is supposedly intended for. And some people have argued that the kinds of benefits that accrue to developers and to investors make it more of a gentrification subsidy rather than something that actually helps people who live there. There's no protections, for example, to keep rents at a certain level. There's no requirements that, you know, you need to be building affordable housing in order to get this benefit. There's no requirements that you need to employ people who live in the areas in order to get this benefit. You know, all you have to do is keep your money in the zone for certain number of years and you get the benefit. And the longer you keep it, the more your benefits. After 10 years, whatever new gains you make for your investments are totally tax-free. So it's seen, you know, there's a lot of criticism about what this is actually going to do for people who live there.
17: That might be the most outrageous part. Um, Caleb, if we're talking about an opportunity zone law, the whole purpose of which is supposed to be to provide jobs and other economic benefits for people who live in economically distressed areas, uh, but there's no guarantee that there will be benefits for them, and there's the high risk that there'll be gentrification, which would actually force them out and you know work to the detriment of their lives. What kind of law is this? <laughs>
6: Well,
18: what I can tell you is uh, this was uh, kind of the brainchild of a group called the Economic Innovation Group uh, that has backing um, from Sean Parker, uh, the Napster founder, uh, Facebook investor, billionaire, and uh, had input from a lot of other people from uh, the venture capital community out in Silicon Valley. And as Anjali was saying, I I mean, this is really uh, meant to be a way for people who have capital gains. And in the case of people in Silicon Valley, that's a a lot of capital gains from a small group of people um, and give them basically a tax-free opportunity to move into real estate for the first time, sell your Google stock, sell your Amazon stock, and move into real estate. Uh, it, but yeah, the, the actual rules for what you have to build in these zones are uh, very laissez-faire. Um, there's a few um, bans against particular what, what they would call sin businesses, uh, strip bars, liquor stores, things like that, casinos. Uh, but other than that, it's it's totally valid value-neutral for, for what you have to uh, build to claim the benefit.
23: Our next caller is 27-year-old Colin Factor. As a gay Filipino-Canadian man, his dating app experience was far from pleasant. He even made a video called Not Into Asians back in 2016. We've connected with Colin in Toronto. Hello.
7: Hi, Duncan. How are you?
23: I'm doing well. I wanna talk about your video because you mentioned that, that people would often put no femmes, no fats, no Asians on their profiles. Yeah. So what does that mean? What what does that mean?
7: Um so within the the gay community there are some terms um that people use in terms of the gay dating apps. So in terms of no fans, no femmes, no fats, no Asians. Um it kind of just says that they're not interested in guys who are more feminine um, rather than um, them being more masculine. Um, also with body issues and also race. So if they're saying no oh, Asians, they're not into Asian guys, and they would rather you not even swipe and even message them at all. When you
23: see a profile like that on a dating app, what what goes through your head?
7: Well, obviously, um, it's very disheartening, but... Um, I think I've come to the point where you realize that you wouldn't want to be associated with those types of people anyways in the first place. No, I wouldn't imagine. And I feel like there has been a lot of progress. I feel in terms of when the gay dating apps began a few years back, um, people were more comfortable with saying those terms, whereas now as a society, especially through like social media and a lot of like, social movements happening through um, gender and race and sexuality, it's not really acceptable behavior anymore, and I feel it almost puts you in a worse position to be writing those things now.
23: What about, what kind of comments, uh, when, you, when you were using the, the dating apps, what kind of comments were you getting as a, as a Filipino-Canadian uh, man?
7: Yeah, it's really difficult because you come at it from a perspective where you are a minority, and um, sometimes you would hear things where people would be like, oh, you're really attractive for an Asian guy. And I remember when I was younger, when I was about 21, um, when I was first coming to terms with my sexuality and starting to date, that was a compliment in my head. But upon reflection, obviously now I am almost embarrassed. And um, if I were to hear that now, obviously I would find it extremely offensive because that is just layered with so much um, underlying racism.
23: Well, and I mean, it must it, it sounds like it's difficult for you uh, in terms of early on when, you know, finding that as a compliment, right? You're attractive for an Asian guy. I mean, so there you're, you've got your own, uh, I don't know, internalized racism. Uh, uh, exactly. Right? So so what have you learned about yourself experiencing that?
7: Um, it's definitely been a journey, and I feel there is a lot to unpack and really um, figure out on my, on my own. Like, you look at it from a perspective of, if you are a minority and you are going after an opposite race, um, you might not even realize that you are also inadvertently being a racist to your own race. Um, and so that's something that's definitely been really eye-opening for me and something that I've really tried to reflect on these last few years. And also I feel like it really connects with the fact that you are growing up in an environment where popular culture does a lot of the times represent Um, especially with male beauty, um, that they are Caucasian and not people of color. So I do feel like in these last few years where there's more representation within films or movies that there is slow progress, but I feel to untangle how it's affected people of color and minorities, it's going to take a very long time to really get to a point where you see a big shift and change.
23: In heterosexual culture, you sometimes hear about the fetishization of of Asian women, yeah. Uh, and and I wonder, it, does that same thing happen in the in the gay community?
7: It does for sure. Um, there's a term when you are in a relationship with a person of color, especially when they are Asian. Um, the person is called a race queen, um, and so a lot of the people that I've been with have been called that, whether it's true or not. And it's hard. It's really hard to, like, really navigate and manage because, like, sometimes I reflect on it and I wonder um, if I'm dating somebody and they've only dated Asian guys, does that work me out? And then there's other days where I'm just like, why is that a big issue? Like, it really shouldn't be an issue. Maybe it's just a preference. Um, but I guess the bigger picture is the fact that you are feeling fetishized, and so I guess that's where all the insecurity really does come from.
23: You are currently single.
7: I am, yes. Uh, what's it like for you? Um, like, I've come to a point now where I'm trying not to put so much pressure on dating, um, especially listening to all your callers, especially with Valentine's Day coming up. It's very in the atmosphere right now to be reflecting on whether or not you're single or in a relationship. And I feel there was a lot of color that was talking to you earlier that really resonated with me. And it's kind of just, you have to be able to be that person that you want to be with. And I feel if you focus on your energy and time into that, that that'll just attract the necessary energy to attract, whether it be friendship or relationship. Um, and everything will just kind of fall into place. And as long as you lead with that, um, I don't really think it can go wrong. And that's kind of something that I'm just kind of working on right now at 27. Self-love.
23: It's a good lesson. Uh, Colin, thank you very much. I appreciate your thank, thoughts on this.
7: Thank you, Duncan. Have a good day.
23: That was 27-year-old Colin Factor in Toronto
19: context of white supremacy gusty renegade in for another broadcast hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy today's date Saturday February 16 2019 so I have been told thanks everyone for being patient uh, we were I announced uh, I believe Thursday perhaps even I think back on Tuesday, I made the announcement when Dr. Uh, Lathan was with us. Lots of great information. Plant-based diet. Eat more vegetables. Put that those Cheetos down. Uh, but I think I announced then that we were going to have to make uh, slight adjustments with some of the uh, broadcast this week uh, because I had teacher training. Uh, I had teacher training yesterday, today, and uh, tomorrow all day today. Wow, what a long Saturday. Whew. The plantation um, but teacher training, learning some things that I will be able to apply uh, at the cows ten year anniversary yoga retreat. Uh, I believe the next time that we are on air uh, unless there's a lot wi- I will have to see about the Wi-Fi situation in Virginia to make sure we're able to broadcast and everything but uh, as long as there's no issue with that, uh, we should be broadcasting. Uh, this coming Saturday compensatory call in uh, a normal time I am a little teased about that it took me some time I am a victim uh, to grasp that being in Virginia I would be on East Coast time so the compensatory call in 9 p.m. Eastern 6 p.m. Pacific that's what time it comes on I was thinking 6 p.m. so Wowie that is quite an adjustment but be that as it may uh, we'll be here next week uh, from VA 10 year anniversary of the cows Uh, folks will get to report from there to see
24: if it has been
19: worth it all of the time and energy that Gus has invested in the yoga is this really worthwhile how do they feel they'll be three days in by that point uh, in terms of classes so they'll be able to give uh, you know an earnest assessment we have had five classes with Gus and uh, either you know it's been rubbish, or, yeah, you know. I think I could tolerate one more class before, or two more. It's, yeah, I think I could tolerate two more classes before we leave. We'll see. Uh, but that'll be next week, normal time. Looking forward to it. Uh, hopeful that uh, I do not get molested, beaten, caged, jailed by TSA officials or any other race soldiers, badge or no. Uh, anywhere on the flight, uh, or anywhere between uh, in uh, the travel plans, uh, getting there, getting back. Hopefully it will be safe for myself and everybody that is participating, all the folks who inquired about participating, people who wanted to participate and we didn't have space. Uh, Huge thanks uh, to everyone, and hopefully it will be worth the time and energy. Uh, We had some uh, audio distortion, I think, for the broadcast and I tried to figure out what the problem was and I was not able to get that corrected hopefully we'll be able to get that situated uh, it seems only to be an issue if you're listening via the live stream so if you uh, are dismayed you can dial in six four one seven one five three six four zero the code five six four nine nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate the number again six four one seven one five three six four zero the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate I will say this quickly uh, the teacher training both days the word context has been used frequently Uh, before i forget that final segment that was talking about racism with the dating apps this is not about area eight say that consistently but in my view that to me is more like racial theater that is not whites seriously trying to solve a problem or even make an investigation that to me sounds like just enjoying uh, hearing about a victim being mistreated uh, and the sexual component to it uh, as well that's racial theater uh, to me uh, and uh, if it, it, that's that speaking of tropes that is a trope of the system of racism white supremacy unless I've been misinformed uh, having emasculated non man Dr. Tommy J. Curry uh, emasculated non-white males, so that seems to fit the same old trope that we've seen for centuries, in my view. I don't view that as serious journalism uh, or serious reporting, even that to me is just racial theater, whites practicing white supremacy, racism. Uh, One other point I'll I'll share it now, just to make sure that I don't forget. All of the hubbub, Regarding Congresswoman Omar, black female, victim of racism, white supremacy, and her uh,
24: tweets.
19: De- I sequenced deliberately, we talked a lot about sequencing in yoga. I deliberately sequenced that clip after the portion uh, on Philip Johnson and this white male, you know, racist, white supremacist, supporting the Nazis and all of that deliberately where they talked about he's forgiven and this guy's endorsing eugenics and literally going to Germany and all of that and he's not just forgiven he is lauded worshiped the uh, buildings that he has created are you know tourist attractions you know throughout North America not just in one country so-called contrast that with Congresswoman Omar and just making you know. A few t- and tweets about lobbyists. I thought many folks, white, non-white, many folks, uh, both sides of the aisle. Isn't that the tacky uh, metaphor that gets employed, uh, meaning members of both parties, political parties, uh, have come out and criticized uh, lobbyists, money in politics, they call it, and people having undue influence uh, to be able to create laws and that sort of thing. I, I thought lots of people. Uh, have you know said that they think that that's a problem that needs to be addressed I also in that very same segment with Congresswoman Omar I said Wow so that's Mark Lamont Hill Congresswoman Omar and I would also include uh, the black Hebrew Israelites because they were at that situation the uh, conflagration uh, in Washington DC earlier this year where uh, the white students uh, and it was I think a so-called Native American male and all of that and people were upset about that and what have you and and they were pointed out because they were there and they were saying that they were saying you know some heated things as well and they that's what got this you know all this started uh, to begin with I could easily see uh, in an era where you're hearing a lot of use of the term uh, fascist and some and comparisons to Nazi Germany I could easily see it become more common to identify well we got you know some black Nazis too you know seems like we got a lot of them we got a lot of these black people that don't like the Jews you know the black people are just turning Semitic and, and oh my goodness anti-Semitic excuse me black people are just uh, the biggest anti-Semites uh, in the world I could easily I mean you already got a pattern in my view that's already a pattern because you got three people and that's very close succession I think all three of those incidents are in the last uh, six months that would definitely be something to be uh, mindful of and I think all three of those incidents got quite a bit of publicity so that's a pattern of publicly uh, targeting black people and accusing them of being uh, anti-semitic uh, again uh, this broadcast decompensatory call-in 10 year anniversary of the cows we have been listener supported for the entire decade invest if you think the program is constructive racism-notes.blogspot.com, racism-notes.blogspot.com. PayPal button is in the top right corner.
24: New PayPal
19: account, Uh, it's been up for, I guess, a few weeks now. Uh, So if you use the old account, I just had it uh, in your history or what have you. uh, New account, closed the old one. Whites forced me to do so. Opened a new account. Uh, And it is linked uh, at Black Talk Radio Network correctly. Uh, I think it's linked at SoundCloud correctly. Uh, I think uh, the other sites linked correctly. But if you have an issue, problem, question, you can drop me an email. But uh, if you visit the blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com, it is linked correctly in the top right corner. If you are not into PayPal, drop an email and we will get you a physical mailing address tremendous thanks to all the folks who have invested uh, for a decade I hope the program has been continues to be worthy of your time and energy Uh, if in addition to I'll say it that well in addition to uh, PayPal and all that uh, you can also invest via the Amazon wish list also linked at my blog Uh, it is Headed under Best T. Renegade at Amazon. Uh, You'll be able to see the list. Again, tremendous gratitude to all of the investors who have nabbed items uh, for a decade again. uh, Hopefully this broadcast providing accurate information on what it means to be white, what racism, white supremacy is, and what non-white people victims of racism can do to solve this problem promptly. Uh, A few quick things. And then we will get to the listeners. Again, I can only say it is astounding in many ways, for many reasons. Uh, the Cow's Yoga Retreat being in Virginia, Gus T going back to Virginia, all of this, the hubbub, uh, coon Man, Governor Northam, uh, NBA, the Lieutenant Governor, uh, and then the investigation of the yearbooks at the University of Virginia, Gus T's alma mater. As they say corks and curls I had never heard that words are so important we say that all the time I had never heard that 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 freezing of the yearbook is a reference to minstrelsy and using the corks uh, to blacken up and curls got to talk about the the naps of the Negro I had never heard that Uh, as a student alumnus University of Virginia uh, first time uh, I'm not surprised at all, uh, nor am I surprised that they tried to offer uh, a khaki alternative that was not uh, connected to white supremacy racism, uh, but again, context makes everything crystal uh, I thought also when They talked to Dr. Tweedy. I was excited. Victim of racism, white supremacy. Make sure I get that in. BGQ, victim guaranteed, qualified. Extremely important. He said what he said. I was so excited, though, to hear them talk to uh, Dr. Tweedy because when all of this first became big news, talking about Governor Northam and him being in med school, dressing or uh, being in med school and admitting to dressing up in blackface and all. Uh, that that should be put in the context of medical white terrorism, medical apartheid, Harriet Washington, top five book, uh, that that's the context that we should look at that. There's a reason, uh, and again with sequencing, there's a reason that I played the segment about infant mortality after that sound clip. There's a reason uh, that they keep talking about black people having all of these health ailments. Plant-based eating might help with some of those issues, but, you know, we got the Coon man as the doctor that's you know another big part uh of the issue and they had dr tweedy on and when i anytime anytime doesn't matter who it is white person non-white person if it's someone classified as white i suspect that they're or yeah i suspect that they're deliberately practicing white supremacy but anytime okay. i hear uh terminology of uh well-meaning whites whatever that is uh that you know these doctors whom, man. That they should have known better or they just didn't know better or they're ignorant or they needed to be we can't assume that these folks uh, know are informed about racism and how to behave how not to behave we can't make those type of assumptions anytime that I hear dialogue that's presented in a manner of, other than what I believe to be totally accurate this is not the first time whites have been consciously deliberately engaging in a variety of racist acts for longer than we know we could say centuries but it's been going on for so long we don't even know how long that's the accurate way not looking at this as you know I well this is maybe just one off or tomfoolery or they didn't know or you know he's uh, rehabilitated himself now talking about the coon man Uh, that that is is just not based in logic it is not based in evidence uh, and it is not going to help us to solve this problem I think we are regularly encouraged to think incorrectly uh, about this here problem Uh, and I just uh, BGQ BGQ I was excited though because his book uh, has been suggested as one that we read for the book club but oh man I always uh, yeah I'm always Dismayed, not pleased, uh, when conversations about white people and their white supremacist conduct end up somehow leading to ignorance, well-meaning, that sort of uh, conversation, those sort of words being employed. Uh, The segment that directly followed about black infant mortality—that's something we talked about a lot. Uh, pre prenatal yoga instructor, gusty renegade. Uh, But I played that number one, Rania Randall multiple-time guest on the cows over the past decade plus Uh, she posted that news segment this week uh, on her social media and I saw it I thought let me check this out you know Professor Randall She normally has pretty constructive information she wrote dying while black that was the first time we had on the program which is filled with constructive information and uh, directly about black infant mortality black maternal mortality rates uh, black help because of white supremacy racism that's what the whole book is about then she talked about that uh, very detailed uh, in 2009 her first visit uh, on the cows back in August uh, but I thought it was important she thought it was important she shared it as well I know some folks have said before and I even questioned you know, it seems like this is getting more attention now why is that I know some people have said that they think that that is false feel free if you if you think you heard anything of that report that did not seem accurate or based in evidence Uh, but there again from Professor Randall Uh, I think I will pause there Uh, again I will request for this program if we did not use metaphors uh, racists they regularly use metaphors to deceive Uh, they will insist that two separate entities are identical exactly alike and often that is not the case. Uh, this is done often to deliberately deceive, practice white supremacy. Victims, including myself, we've been ex- uh, we've been exposed to this misconduct uh, for centuries, uh, and we are still learning. Sometimes we insert metaphors, comparison analogies in place of logic because we don't have the words uh, to articulate what we want to say and frequently that just causes a lot more confusion Uh, if we could just be you know direct explicit to what we want to say that would be greatly appreciated Uh, I will talk about that moving forward if you could take about uh, five minutes with your commentary uh, that way, everybody has an opportunity to speak. Uh, if you have additional questions, comments that you want to make sure you get in, we'll have we'll uh, have time for that. Just make sure that everybody has at least one chance to share. Much obliged. If you know you're in a noisy environment, if you could please use your mute button, mute, yeah, mute button. Uh, that way, people do not have to compete with a lot of disruptions or other people talking in the background. Much obliged. Uh, With that, we will get to the phone line, 641-715-3640, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, Let's see.
9: Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Yes, good evening, Gus. Uh, Good evening to all the callers and listeners on the line. This is Codified Software Developer in Wisconsin. I just wanted to call in the weigh in on the Virginia situation. Um, So it's been very disconcerting to me. I actually went to school with Justin Fairfax and knew him very well. I went to school with his wife. As well I remember when they started dating everything and um, you know it just it seems to me as though this is a a targeted effort to ensure that a black person does not hold um, the title of governor in Virginia and it really bothers me because I know that mr. Fairfax has been working uh, on his career for over two decades, um, and this will ruin his career. And this, this, this situation to me sort of indicates is very indicative of the way white supremacy operates, and of how little regard white people have for non-white people, particularly for black people, particularly for black men. Um, as I understand it predatory people generally are predators throughout their existence and I've never known Justin Fairfax to be a predator um, and so either that he's made a 180 degree turnaround in his personality or their line um, so just it just this I just want to say this like this this person has done everything quote-unquote right you know he went to the right school he married the right girl he did everything right And still, uh, this sort of situation can happen to him, and it can happen to any one of us. So I just want people to think about that, just how severe uh, the actions of white supremacists, just how quickly they can ruin their life with one instance, with one situation. Um, And I did have a a brief um, workplace racism comment, but I'll, I'll hold off on that. Uh, thanks for allowing me to share. I will mute my line.
19: Definitely, we'll come back to get the workplace racism update. But uh, yeah, yeah, with Mr. the situation with Mr. Fairfax made me again appreciate, and I think that was probably a contributing factor to Dr. Curry's book, "The Man Not Being Elevated." Well, I'll ask this really quick: uh, codified. Uh, software developer, uh, the situation with uh, Lieutenant Governor Fairfax in Virginia. Does that uh, add any credence to what Dr. Curry had to say in the man not? I think you were with us on that book study.
9: Yes, sir. It, uh, it does, very much so. Uh, particularly because you can, I mean, clearly you can lobby any sort of uh, accusation at a black male, especially an accusation about a black male sexually, attacking sexually mistreating uh a woman and and or anybody and it is believed instantly um and i i that's a big problem right because we've seen this we've seen this behavior throughout however many centuries white supremacy has existed where they just, all they have to do is accuse a black man of doing something and his whole life is ruined and his life may be taken you know uh, so yes, it does. It it definitely does lend credence to what Dr. Curry said in that book.
19: The man, not race, class, genre, and the dilemmas of black manhood. Dr. Tommy J. Curry, top ten, Gus T. Renegade, very important. And he that sentence it haunted me. He said, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but it, the gist of it was, uh, if it's a black male, and he's accused of rape more likely than not he did it that is the general worldwide consensus as it relates to black males that is gusty renegade OJ Simpson Bill Cosby Justin Fairfax uh, Tamir in certain name uh, I forgot uh, George Stinney, 14 year old that's who's on the co- insert name if it's any suspicion oh yeah he did it doesn't matter you know <laughs> oh yeah he probably did it oh yeah that's what that's what black males do uh, other feverish feverish other folks who called in if you have commentary line should be open I guess all the people with hands up are uh, going slowly uh, we have 10 year anniversary cows yoga retreat t-shirts there are a limited number of these t-shirts they are a limited number because Gus T had to do these t-shirts uh, personally not making them obviously the stitching and all that but in terms of like uh, getting the design done and uh, hip-hop cartoons excellent job producing the design I just told him what I want he was able to get it done phenomenal work he did the edits Johnny on the spot just brilliant professional work uh, but since Gus had to do all the running around to do everything to do this and uh, I said years ago when we had the counter racist t-shirts that I'm not uh, attempting to get in the t-shirt uh, or garment market at all Uh, that any T-shirts that Gusty has to be affiliated with is not going to be a whole lot of them because I'm not interested in having to run around and do size checks and, I mean, really. (laughs) So uh, the people at the yoga retreat are good. If you are at the yoga retreat, you will have a shirt. But uh, the other folks, because some people did say, well, you know, I don't think we'll be able to make it to Virginia, but if there are shirts, I would like to purchase one. There should be a limited number of shirts. You can drop an email until justice. At gmail.com and uh, we'll just do first come first serve i'll uh, give out details once i actually have them in hand but there should be a limited number of 10 year anniversary cows yoga retreat t-shirts featuring the coon man Woof, love it uh but i will give out details uh other folks uh who dialed in jeff commentary that we've not heard from
15: Hello, Mabby Hurd.
19: Greetings, Red in Nevada.
15: Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Hello, everyone. Um, just a few things about the clips that I heard. Um, I came in when they were speaking about, I forgot the white man's name who was working with the Nazis. Um, I definitely picked up on the fact that the, the person who was being interviewed, how he said that, um, also presuming that he would um, be, I'm sorry the architect um, he had basically said something along the lines of well I'm sure he felt bad or I, I believe that he felt bad about his actions and then he proceeded to call him cynical and and how he kind of just did things just for um, attention so I thought that those two being cynical, and then also him feeling bad about what he did, I, I feel like that's kind of like an oxymoron. Maybe I'm wrong, um, but definitely uh, that that makes. And I, I definitely agree with Gus with how black people may be rebranded, or um, I guess yeah, maybe rebranded as being anti-Semitic. And I'll never forget how um, Dr. Welzing, I think she was the one who broke down the fact that it was people anti Semitic meant people of mixed race, and how you know the it's the um the meaning of the word changed throughout history um, also it i and also it kind of makes me um think about how black people have been or you know people classified as black what have you have been called um homophobic and yet we don't we don't have the ability to make any laws to tell someone who they should not be with. So I also thought that, you know, that might be, you know, kind of the same thing. Um, there was one thing I wanted to discuss about or actually a couple of things I wanted to discuss about Nevada. Um, I read the Las Vegas review journal, or sorry, Las Vegas uh, review. It's the name of their paper, their newspaper. And over the past week, uh, there was a school i can 't pull up the article right now, but there was a school um It was actually right outside it was actually i 'm sorry on the border of um, california the Nevada and the uh, california border and they had to shut it down and and also they charged the owners or the the managers of the school it was for quote unquote like at risk teens. Because there was arsenic in the water, and they the two people who were uh, hit, who were managing the school or the owners of it, um, they were both white people—one white man and his wife. Uh, the white woman she had got charged with. Like different um, counts of abuse and neglect, all relating to just the conditions of those children, I thought that that was um interesting, but um, i didn't I wasn't able to look up like the racial um, breakdown of the school. There was an article um, not that long ago where they did actually break down the racial um, demographics of some of the Clark County schools, which is in um, the Las Vegas area. Uh, the other thing was. Um, I did see uh, an article where they did finally pass a 2016 voter initiative uh, regarding background checks for private gun sales. And in the article, the main thing that stuck out to me was that they did finally reference the October 1st shooting. Um, at other than you know October the October 1st shooting, they actually called it the 2017 route 91 harvest shooting um, but I guess that was you know they passed it they said they passed it or um, yeah it was actually passed and written into law um, on the anniversary of the Florida shooting and I'll meet my line thank you
19: much applause read in Nevada Wonderful. land, Philip Johnson, I thought that was an important point as well. I thought, i was glad you pointed that out. I'm saying, yeah, he had a change of heart. Yeah, he, he felt bad of all that and put all that, you know, Nazi rhetoric. Like, how do you even know that to read something? Like, come on, come on. Like, and they do that all the time with the, They did what that with the coon man. They just did that. I've heard White say that, yeah, I think he's rehabilitated. You know, maybe he did do Curtis Blow or Michael Jackson or, you know, whatever. But uh, yeah, that was a long time ago, I think he's moving on. Standard response from racist man racist woman racist child even uh, let's see other folks who dialed in that we missed totally if you have a hand up proceed
25: hello may I be heard
19: uh, yes ma'am greetings Irene
25: greetings everyone greetings Gus I have Some short things to say, um, let's see. The first thing was about the artifacts. And so, um, with that, the gentleman said that he didn't trust, uh, the Congo with their own artifacts because, you know, some of them are very valuable. And my question was valuable. How to whom, um, in 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 like in terms of the euro like european money the last i thought you know artifacts like that were uh priceless it can't be replicated the you know everything about them is something that can't be replaced so you know they're in fact priceless but he's saying they're valuable in my in my mind in as if to say that um these African people don't have, uh, you know, what it takes to um, afford to care for them or to uh, buy them back even. I think that might even be something, you know, um, they would want them to do if they wanted them to uh, or wanted to have it permanently, the artifacts. But um, the other thing I was thinking with that is, okay, so... Since you don't think they're trustworthy with these artifacts, why don't you pay for the security? Why doesn't the country of Belgium do it? You stole it. Um, You've made money off of it with museum entries and so forth, so on, along with pillaging the Congo and and massacring the people. That should be a part of a reparations package to the Congo then. And... um, why why does the why does the exhibit or why do these artifacts have to be rotated you you just like this this european these europeans cannot let go of things that do not belong to them and that's the message that i got we we will give you your items back on consignment absolutely abominable abominable excuse me so the next thing is um about the real estate development and um, with the corporations being able to get these tax benefits, so forth and so on, I told a friend of mine this, and the reason I, I, I've come to this conclusion is because I do pro se legal work, which means basically it's Latin for, for self. And so with the understanding that I'm developing of these people's rules, regulations, a.k.a. laws, My understanding is that the United States is a corporation which existence is to ensure and defend the capital and capitalism of private and public corporations therein. What do I mean by that? States, municipalities, cities, townships, villages, or corporations. They have been incorporated at some time and have corporate seals they also have charters or articles of incorporation organization so do private corporations private corporations are a little bit different because they are considered legal persons therefore they can conduct business and engage in trade like a living breathing person would and the united states government or corporation has proven over its time and its and its establishment um, officially in, what is it, 1775, that they are a corporation, helping corporations through the system of racism, white supremacy. So I'm not surprised that they're making incentives for businesses to go in and give an uplift or a facelift. Oh, no, that's a metaphor. Excuse me. Give some type of economic uplift to an area that's being gentrified, of course. That's what they're doing in New Orleans. They, there's a term, and this is a metaphor, but I will define it. People from out of town come in on business doing, uh, you know, construction work, etc. They call them car- carpetbaggers because that was a the term they used after the Civil War, after reconstruction, when they wanted to rebuild and start moving, you know, Negroes out. Basically, where are you? You gotta go. We have these black codes, you have to go. So instead of they're not doing it that way anymore, they have to refine it. We're gonna make it where this area is nicer, yours is crap. And then I, I just I don't know, I'm I think we need to really, really study European history in lieu to American history so we can really, really understand what we're seeing. And we need to also study law, even if it's occasionally, because these things are happening because we don't have an understanding of who they are and how the system of racism, white supremacy works when it comes to the things that they put on paper. And um, yeah, that's it. Thank you very much. And I'll meet my line. Have a good night.
19: Much obliged. Irie, Louisiana. Uh, I thought that portion uh, from the BBC about the uh, artifacts I thought that was important as well because the one suspected racist he did he he said I'm paraphrasing but it was I don't know they don't even have you know security we can't trust these niggas to have their own property back in their possession basically we can't trust that I mean wow you know look at it here like uh, I thought that was fascinating but the legal piece with regards to racial dislocation and then basically subsidizing subsidizing uh, whites race soldiers to come in and dislocate uh, black people I thought that was important as well because uh, they said the law the laws were written in such a vague manner uh, that they could just go in kind of as they want lots of discretion to say oh well this is you know a poor and displaced neighborhood They're like well wait a minute you've already booted out half of the displaced neighborhood. Hey, hey, hey we said it's a poor and displaced neighborhood so this place will get the benefits and it just so happens that lots of new white people are the residents who will get the benefits hmm oh well classic racist move other folks who dialed in uh, that we missed totally uh, if you have a hand up star six one. if you have commentary to share
26: Have you heard? Uh greetings, call in Florida. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. I wanted to start out with um the uh there was a news segment, a uh, two news segments I seen from the, um I think it was yeah, it was Inside Edition. The first was uh there was a report on how it was a camera catching people, I guess, avoiding paying to uh I guess get on the subway or something and it would show this surveillance footage of people mostly white jumping over the rail that kinda locks them in the gate so it would show them avoiding paying. So they had this reporter go out and it seemed for the most part they they were questioning the white people but they they made sure that they got that one or two um black one or two black people I guess uh, coming off being um I guess I don't I wouldn't say assertive but being I guess rude toward them, saying, Oh well, you know, get that getting the camera away from me. But most of the people they show they showed doing it were white people. See so like that was well calculated and racist right there. And they showed a black female saying, Well, oh, are you gonna arrest me? You can call me. You can call somebody to come arrest me or something. Like, what are you going to do about it? (laughs) So, but it was like 15 to 18 white people, um, pale skinned people, they were doing (laughs) the same thing. So, but the report mainly focused on the black people. Um, the, The next one was there was a, they did another experiment where they sent a white man out into a neighborhood. And I guess they were trying to do a story on helping people to be, I guess, cautious of who you answer the door for. So this this man practiced deception saying that he was from the the Water Commission, the National Water Commission, and people believed it. And he had on this uh, vest and the hat, the whole thing. And people said, you know, they said, um, well, he looked very trustworthy to me and I could trust him to come into the house. All he did was just knock on the door. They opened the screen door, said, "Yeah, you know, um, my name is Gary, such and such, and I'm from the Water Commission." So and said, oh, "Okay, come on in." And it only took one white man to say, "All right, sir, if you could just show me a card, then um, you're in business. You can go ahead and come in." So the guy was saying, "Hey, that's a great job. You, you, don't you don't just let this anyone in." So i like, and people were like, "It's just amazing. Why would they just let someone in?" And I'm thinking, "Well, it's a white man, you know, so they, you know, they don't think that he would be suspicious." So that's the racist code right there, in my opinion. Um, the the next one was, I think that when it comes to the the blackface, the um, the governor, uh, Governor DeSantis, it was one of his, uh, I believe, someone on his. I guess, staff or something like that. He was doing the blackface, and he was mocking the victims of Hurricane Katrina, so um, major racist activity, and he disassociated himself from that guy. So this is definitely a conscious, willful, uh, white supremacist culture being practiced. And, uh, uh, Gus, I don't know if you heard of there was a shooting, I guess, in the Illinois area uh, area where it was a black male who, um, I guess, he opened fire or he uh, killed, I think, like, five people at the job or something like that. He was being terminated, and it looks like it was under suspicious circumstances. So uh, he, it was, uh, I think his name is Gary Martin. Um, He was in a meeting, and I guess after the meeting of him being fired, he killed, uh, I think, five people. And it just reminded me of the uh, Omar Thornton phone call where he was saying, like, hey, you know, these people are racist here. They treat me bad. They treat all of them. They treat all of us bad. So uh, I don't know if anyone has uh, looked that up. And that's all I have right now. Thanks for allowing me to share.
19: Wow. Much obliged, uh, caller in Florida. I saw the shooting but I didn't know enough, like I didn't know that the shooter was a uh, black male, a lead shooter was a black male. Um, I didn't have that component of it. I just saw that it happened and it seemed like it was workplace related. Uh, I was saying I was going to have to check back to see once there was more deep. The report that I'm looking at now was published today, so it is ongoing. Um, yeah, ongoing. Yeah, they just said the police just reported this uh, today, so this is an ongoing situation, but yeah, I have to get more implement workplace racism that's why I said I definitely want to circle back to here codified software developer that this sort of thing although it doesn't get to this point you know that often I mean although we could just be not informed but I certainly know you have this kind of thing happen uh, where black people are being abused terrorized on the job dr. Wilson talked about this quite a bit I said even one of the participants at, at the retreat said is there going to be time at the retreat to discuss workplace racism I didn't even have that on the agenda If anyone listening has more details about the Chicago shooting uh, as it relates to workplace racism, I would definitely uh, appreciate hearing that. Uh,
24: Other folks that we
19: have not heard heard from at all. Uh, Thomas from New York. Yes, sir.
24: Good evening, Gus. Good evening to all the callers. Um, Yeah, I saw that the guy, he was um, brought into a human resources office. He knew he was going to be terminated probably that day. And um, when they did terminate him, he pulled out his gun and he shot. It it seems like he shot the people who uh, caused his termination. He was very specific or who he shot. And then when the police went in, uh, he barricaded himself in a place where he was able to hit a few of the police before they had ultimately killed him. Um, But he was a black guy. I don't know the details of the people he shot. Um, one of the people's names look like they are of Spanish-speaking descent. Um, and, um, uh, also, Gus, like I said, I, I, I've been in, um, 20 below weather. I don't even think the most dedicated white supremacist is going to be outside walking around with noose and bleach in 40 degrees, 40 below weather. I didn't think that was a true story that's coming out that it probably wasn't, um, yeah, that's a level of dedication I don't think anything without fur can um absorb. Um now um, the clip that you played about the DNA, he um he said he can lift the DNA from a doorknob and differentiate five different DNAs from that one doorknob. Um and then it was alluded to if you shake um someone's hand Then you go touch that doorknob, now you're putting your DNA plus the person whose hand you shook DNA on that doorknob. And I thought that that was very um, scary. Um, Barry Sheck, a lawyer, um, during the O.J. Simpson trial, he was brought in to plug holes into the DNA evidence. He was a DNA specialist. And, um, you know, the DNA evidence that was presented by the state of California against Mr. Simpson. And um, one of the instances during the case, they showed a fence where they collected DNA evidence that tied O.J. Simpson to the crime scene. And they even showed pictures of this blood from the fence that they collected this DNA evidence from and tested and they said it was O.J.'s blood. And then Barry Sheck showed the picture of the fence the day after the crime took place and there was no blood there, and he was pretty much showing how they planted the blood around the crime scene, which was pure as, um, pure, you know, clear as day. You could see it, um, that there was nothing there, and now there's something here that they're collecting a week later. How did that get there? And, you know, OJ was missing blood. It was a lot of things, but now the cops can um, rub your hand while they cuff you, and then touch something that links you to a crime scene, um, I think that that's um, very scary. Uh, Also, um, if you have a DA or maybe a state attorney general with the fetish for wearing blackface as a young adult, uh, that might just be enough to convict or charge you for a crime, you know, that you weren't even there for. Um, Well, you you know, his DNA was on that doorknob, and... um, there's so many ways it could get there. I think it's very scary. Um the Kushner family. They recently purchased the building that I live in. Um these um zones, the first zones were set up um in the late seventies but to target black people in the nineties. Um under Bill Clinton he used the ten thirty one tax code. And it opened up the the door for whites to come into um, black areas and buy up um, property. And it was all under the guise of it's a high crime area. So these were the areas they wanted to invest in um, for pennies on the dollar, of course. Um, and because the banks kept the property values low, um, it opened up our ghettos to gentrification. And that's what we're seeing now. Now, um, it's it's all a, a scheme because Jersey City, where I grew up at, um, regardless of where you reside, you live five, to, you have a five to ten, a five to twenty-minute commute by train, car, boat, bus to New York City's financial district, um, where a lot of jobs are. Um, low property values were based on crime rates, not the actual property value. You know how much that is to live that close to the city. You know, but they're keeping your property value low. They store for crime rates, and as soon as the white people come in, the property values goes up. You know, it, it's pretty much what they did. So, um, I've been getting a lot of information on this this um new um zone that they they're pushing, and um, because my company, the um, accounting firm I work for, they're selling this to their clients. Um as an investment, you know, and and they're doing the taxes for it and everything. Um, And I asked one of them about it, and he was talking about it in a very positive way, and I asked, well, what would it do to black people? He says, well, um, have you heard of the 1031? I said, of course. He said, well, compared to the 1031, this will be the 1031 on steroids. He says, it won't be gentrification. It'll just be, um, you know, just everyone has to go. Um, a company called CADRE, C A R, I mean C A D R E. This is owned by Jared Kushner. This is a technology company that millionaires are using to invest in black areas in bulk to buy up these empowerment all under the guise of these empowerment zones. And unlike the first 1031, they don't have to be in that area at all. These people might never even see your area. They might be thousands of miles away, they're investing in your area like it's a stock or bond, and it's all based on getting you out of there. And um, it's, it's going to be terrible. Um, back to the blackface. Um, Mr. Cory Booker um, says that we need to put ourselves in the shoes of white people. Um, I find that to be, um, you know, I almost choked when he said that. Um, I had to gasp for air. I couldn't believe Yeah, exactly. Couldn't believe a a person would say that, a black person would say that to defend white people. Um, We need to put ourselves in their shoes. Terrible. Um, A young basketball player, a star basketball player in Milwaukee, I'm glad Rob got out of there. Jalen Johnson, he took a picture on, probably posted it on Facebook or Twitter or whatever he had an acne mask on his face. And um, they, he was playing in a game, and the opposing team, they all took that picture to kind of put it in black and white so it looked like it's blackface. And they all made life-size posters of this picture. Well, um, poster size, you know, they blew it up to poster size, and when he went to shoot free throws, they um, stood there and they waved this, um, this poster around. And um, I thought that was terrible, um, but it just shows how these people are. Um, he has a black parent, but I mean, and a white parent, so he's mixed. But um, his parents were, of course, very upset about it, and they thought it was a racist act, which, of course, it was. And I will mute my line thinking thus the uh, Senator
19: Booker, U.S. Senator Cory Booker, is comment about black people, victims needing to put themselves in white people's shoes, that is a metaphor, uh, as is uh, On Steroids, about the program in New York metaphor. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have uh, come people that we missed totally, uh, if you have comments, uh, proceed. Can I bear? Be Yes, sir. Greetings, uh, Henry in Chicago.
21: Uh, greetings, Gus, and uh, greetings to all the uh, callers and listeners. Uh, I wanted to uh, comment on the uh, the show that you had on Tuesday, uh, Dr. Rudy Lathan. Um, it was a very interesting show. I wish I was uh, I, I caught it on the archives because I couldn't catch the uh, the live show on Tuesday. But uh, lots of uh, great information. Uh, on that show I'm kind of transitioning into a vegan lifestyle uh, just uh, attempting to trying to just trying to cut some of the stuff that you know I've been kind of normally eating like cheese dairy um, you know white sugar and stuff like that so uh, really appreciate all the information that was uh, given on that show I wish I could have joined it live Uh, I wanted to ask her some questions as well as being
19: since you brought up food uh what what did you eat today henry in chicago
21: <laughs> oh well um i had a i had a salad uh um, this morning uh i had some water i did have some some coffee um so i'm I'm trying to transition so uh I'm not saying that I've fully <laughs> fully done vegan but you know little by little I can I can cut certain foods out so uh I've 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 had I've had two bowls of salad today so uh, but I did have coffee today uh and I had a banana nut bread so you know I can't can't say I fully transitioned but <laughs>
9: um
21: as far as uh, the Aurora shooter, uh, from you know, uh, the the guy they identified, non-white, black male. Uh, I think his name is Gary Martin. Um, what's What's interesting about that that particular case is uh, they're bringing up a lot of his criminal record and criminal uh, activities in the past. Uh, apparently, he has some sort of um some restraining order put against him uh he also uh, had his uh firearm uh uh license revoked but basically nobody from you know law enforcement uh you know told him to turn in his gun when his uh when his uh firearm card was uh revoked apparently there was some incident in Mississippi where he was accused of some sort of robbery or something like that. Now, working on the job for 15 years at this particular manufacturing company in Aurora, which from my understanding pays, you know, pretty decent. You know, it's like he has this long record and he worked on a job for 15 years and it just kind of find it, you know, a little weird, that they would let him, on, you know, work on this job for 15 years like that uh, with, you know, with his fire car, car arm being revoked because of a past incident because, you know, uh, you know, unfortunately for, you know, for us now white black people, anytime we have one particular legal discrepancy, uh, it could be a traffic stop. Uh, you know, uh, chances of getting a job or even keeping a job, you know, gets very slim, uh, or, you know, we, we might not get the job because, you know, we might have bad credit or something like that. So, uh, kind of finding an interest. Now, I'm not going to say it didn't happen, you know, I'm not uh, doing a conspiracy, but, you know, it's just interesting the way his record is coming out, you know, after this particular shooting. So, uh, that's uh, that's all I have for now. I need my mind
19: much obliged Henry in Chicago so glad to hear we got some salads in there raw vegetables always great uh, keep up keep it up with the transitions. hopefully we can get dr. Uh, Lathan back on the program I thought she had uh, excellent information as well plant-based meals at the cows yoga retreat other folks that we had not heard from at all
3: hello Yes, ma'am. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Sorry about before when I coughed. That was I not done on purpose. Sorry about that. Um, lots of good clips. Just the contrast. Last week, you—I believe it was last week—you had the clip about the educator who passed away um, early in her life, not late, early in her life, and they talked about how wonderful she was in the beginning. By then, by the end of it, she was, sounded like an idiot incompetent uh, idiot who couldn't get her job done. In contrast to the Nazi architect who, oh, it's a complex past, but he became redeemed and everyone just loves his buildings. That is a pattern always. I believe that is a pattern. That's always something we should look for. Um, at the end of the book that was read during the book club, the word, when her words used was cupidity, cupidity, like, I guess, you know, Cupid, which i I said. well, let me look that up, you know, especially it being, quote, unquote, Valentine's Day that day. And it means greed for money or possessions, which makes sense in the context of the word. So I think we should be, if you do, quote, unquote, celebrate that day, know that you may be, quote, unquote, celebrating greed. If that's what you choose to do, VTQ, just trying to let you know what the word means. And also with the employment zones, I've heard about those. But I think another area that's talk- is not talked about as much is what's called targeted employment areas, and those are where people, foreign people, can become a citizen if they invest a certain amount. Um, I believe it's five hundred thousand to a million dollars. You can invest in areas. And what, and one complaint and that I heard of from a black person who had did um, research on this is that they expanded the area in New York instead of making, let's say, it is a neighborhood called Red Hook. So instead of just making Red Hook in an empowerment area, a target area is expanded to all of New York City, which would not need that. It's necessarily need all that assistance. So in addition to the opportunity zones, which may be used by countries, headquartered in this country. They have the targeted employment areas. So when you see people of foreign countries, and usually it's China because they have banking and you have to have bank records to prove that you have a certain amount of um, funds available to invest, so that's something you may start seeing. You know, you probably won't see them in your area, Chinese people per se, but you know, they own a lot of areas. There will be only one than just the areas in Chinatown. So you want to be careful or just be aware of that. And um, I think that's all I have for now. If I think of something else, hopefully I can say something later. Thank you.
24: Yes, ma'am.
3: Cupidity.
19: Looking up the words while reading. Excellent habit. I encourage folks to do that. Uh, really make sure you maximize your learning experience as you read dr. Welsing reading is more important than watching television others that we missed completely oh and while folks were that was superintendent Michelle King who passed away at 57 uh, that was discussed last week where they started out that oh
24: yeah
21: it's so sad Miss
19: King died, and then the rest of the yeah, she wasn't very good, couldn't do this, and couldn't, uh, that was Michelle King, died at 57. That is the stress, workplace stress of racism, white supremacy. Other folks that we missed completely?
27: Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Greetings guys. Greetings to all the callers and the listeners. This is in Yame in Nebraska. Uh, I just wanted to touch on uh, a late development in the uh Jesse smulick uh case. I guess uh recently uh the police were investigating his uh, alleged attackers and they detained or arrested uh two non-white men from nigeria and later released them without charges uh now they're saying that uh the case has turned around and they suspect jesse smollett uh orchestrated the entire thing and that the non-white men from nigeria were now going to cooperate with the police um this this case actually it it reminds me of something that actually happened here in Nebraska years ago where a uh white woman who identified herself as a lesbian um she alleged that she was attacked in her home by three masked men who stripped her uh naked uh tied her with zip ties and carved uh homophobic slurs into her skin and it turned out she'd orchestrated the entire thing uh, i guess to bring more attention to uh hate crimes against uh so-called uh homosexuals and um with the jesse smollett case i'm not sure if it's related to workplace racism or not um the fox uh, network released a statement uh yesterday the day before yesterday um responding to uh speculations that he was about to be let go from the show and they was going to kill off his character. But Fox denied that. So um, yeah, I'm just interested to see how this is going to play out and how racists may use this situation to discredit further claims of racism by other victims of uh, racism. Uh, that's, that's all I wanted to touch on. Thanks for letting me share. I'm my for sure. Did, much obliged,
19: sir. The people that were following that case, uh, did the victim in that case, I mispronounce his name, I'm a victim, the star of empire, uh, did the evidence come out that this may have been a fabrication, with that after he did his interview with Robin Roberts this week or before? Or maybe uh,
27: may- people didn't see that. Uh, I didn't I did not see the interview, um, but the it was officially released, uh an article released by CBS News hours ago stating that he was officially being investigated for orchestrating the uh the alleged attack. So I would think that okay. it, it was after the um uh, interview. Uh, gotcha
19: after gotcha appreciate Thomas in New York uh, both of you much obliged uh, that is interesting I wonder if they will have him back on now that you know the police has announced a turn in their uh, investigation fascinating I remember Thomas in New York last week when he raised his suspicion I said seems logical to me uh, and uh, stick by the same thing that I said I do think Uh, in a system of racism white supremacy if a black person reports that they have been a victim of racism until there's evidence that they're not telling the truth they should get the benefit of the doubt. also I think that's logical system of racism Uh, other folks uh, that we missed completely did we nab everybody any folks we missed totally? I will assume we got everyone for the time being. Star six, one. if you have a hand up and have not commented, think you have a comment question you want to uh, get in uh, before we get ready to wrap up. We should have, uh, I don't know, have started 30 minutes or so somewhere. I'll try and compensate for the late start, so we should have time if you have a comment. But do not lollygag six four one seven one five three six four zero the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate Uh, let's see codified software developer did you want to give us the workplace racism update
9: Uh, sure Gus thank you so I think I've discussed on workplace racism that there's only five black people that work at the company i worked for and, well, six. One is an intern. And I shared previously that this intern had been told that uh, there wasn't, they didn't know if there was enough money in the budget to hire her, even though uh, they're telling us that they're expanding. So I spoke with her, I don't know couple of days ago and um I asked her if, if there had been any updates and she said yes. She was looking at a BA position and currently she's in development. Uh so this would be a total a total switch for her from one area of the company to another. And I asked her why that was and she said well because she had been in um she she has a business degree uh, that she probably wouldn't be, or that she wasn't qualified. So I guess they told her that. And I said, well, you know, uh, there are many people who work in development as developers who have business degrees, including some of the development managers who started as developers. And um, she looked very shocked. And so I'm I'm getting a feeling that, I don't know, this, this young lady uh they're giving her the runaround. They're making her reapply for the job where I know that interns they've had before, they've just offered them a job. So I don't know if she um, if she's going to receive a job or not, but um, that's really all I had. It's just, again, the machinations of people who practice white supremacy, white people. Uh, with that, I'll meet my line. Thanks. Mm-hmm
24: whites being
19: white all I can say um, <laughs> that is so common uh, not funny I mean it's just it's tragic but that is so common any sort of excuse deception uh, over will tell you anything oh you just don't have the correct degree or anything any sort of uh, excuse to a black person who's probably brilliant and more than capable of doing phenomenal uh, work in could probably be a phenomenal asset to the company but that's not what this is about Uh, other folks uh, if you had comments questions uh, that you wanted to share Do we have any other folks who saw or have more I guess current information on the shooting in Chicago because that was something as I said I saw it but I didn't have at least the earlier reports that I saw they didn't have any uh, details about racial classification so knowing that the shooter apparently is a black person uh, did anybody else uh, get I guess more details on that
25: hello um may I be hurt Yes, ma'am irene, Louisiana. Um, I don't have any other details on that, but it made me think of this um when I was visiting up here um last year uh I passed the um what is that the Crown Plaza Hotel, and there were several um a lot of non white females out dressed in purple. And I was like, what's going on? I read the sign, and the signs were like, justice for Kanika. We demand a proper investigation. And so what I wanted to ask um, to the listeners, um, if anybody has updates on that, because, um, you know, that was really, that that was something really shocking that occurred um i I know a lot of people um speculated I have friends that live in Chicago. They speculated that it was also a part of oregon Oregon excuse me harvesting by um some company they claim isn't too far from the hotel and there's probably some conspiracy so I'd like to know if anybody has updates on that and i'll I'll mute my line thank you. oh wait, one other thing there's a um a bill um that they're attempting to pass into law um i a i'm sorry h r two two eight two and it's a, basically a hate crime um bill that I read it a little bit it's basically saying even if you call a gay person a name that you could be charged with a hate crime, let alone beating them up and so this was introduced i can't remember when by no miss Harris is uh, one of the people that's pushing for it to get passed. And I know she made commentary on Mr. Smollett's attack saying that it was a modern-day lynching. So I'm really, at this point, hoping and praying that it wasn't staged because it'll just take all the validity away from any future lynchings that occur, if, you know, God forbid that they would. But if so, you know, that would be uh, very, very bad for
19: um, us. And
25: I'll meet my line. Good night, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Gus.
19: What was the name of the uh, female that you wanted us to investigate or share if people had more information? Kanika Jenkins. Kanika Jenkins.
25: Yeah. So I don't know if you know Gus, but basically she was found in the freezer of the hotel. Um, She attended a party with some friends. And um, I think... Uh, they said they drugged her up or something. There's video of her um, walking up and down the halls, looking disoriented, no shoes on. And then the next thing they know, um, Uh, a day later or so, they found her in the, in the freezer. uh, So foul play. It's definitely foul play.
3: Yeah. Non-white,
25: non-white black female.
19: I thought this was like a recent, this is from a while. Okay. I this was from a while ago, so many incidents of black people being killed and, you know, murdered in a variety uh, of different ways. I thought this was uh, somebody recent that had been killed or something happened to Miss uh, Miss uh, Kanika Jenkins, I wasn't even – I didn't even hear the name correctly. Kanika Jenkins, my apologies. Uh, did, if folks had uh, commentary uh, on that or if they had other uh, comments, questions, well, I'd be I to share comments. In New York?
24: Yes, um I remember that case and the only thing that really stood out to me um uh, was there was video footage of her and um you could see that it had been altered. Um it was parts that were like cut and then re edited, you know, she was in a different place what happened in that span of time. Um, is pretty much what, it, what I kept thinking about it, but I haven't heard any updates on it. I think that the city of Chicago closed that case. Um, either way, the um, and she just named the the number uh, HJ twenty something. Um, it, it's going to give um, homosexuals civil rights, um, and you know this is one of the things that I've always said was going to be terrible. It's, I mean, because with the gay men, um, white men, gay white men have not been, had their civil rights violated. Um, they have not been um, unable to um, acquire certain things, unable to um, leave behind certain things. They they have been very much um, a part of, The system of white supremacy just as much as straight white men and I think it's terrible that somehow now they apply to get the same um, equal opportunity rights that were given to people who were systematically um, left behind that that that's me is terrible I mean most of these CEOs and these corporations are gay white men you know it's not like they're being kept from um, moving up in life they haven't been here hundreds of years and still at the same, um, you know, point that they were when they were freed. I mean, they, they've always been free. I don't – I totally disagree with it, um, and it's terrible. Uh, also, what they're doing to that um, congresswoman, as far as, you know, the, the Jews, um, she submitted a comment and they, they want her to apologize and all of that. They also passed a law in Congress. This makes it illegal for people to say anything negative about the state of Israel. That can get you in trouble. Um, and I think that's terrible because if in crimes against a group of people. And if you say something about it, now you can be um, ostracized and maybe lose your job. Um, so um, this is just how they're, they're doing things. No one gets in trouble for whatever they do to us, you know? Um, and, um, another thing I wanted to say, the clip you played, and I thought that someone made a great point, um, where they talked about the Nazi and all the great things he did. Forget about the crimes he committed. You know, he's white. We'll forgive him, you know, and we'll name buildings after him, and we'll let him come here and teach in schools, and, you know, that's just how they do. Um, we never get forgiven for anything we've done. We always have to forgive white people. We always have to put ourselves in, you know, position where we're thinking like white people would be thinking. Um, And of course, um, the way they're thinking is white privilege. Um, But what was the term the guy used on the show, Gus? Um, Man, man, it it, it skipped my brain. Uh, The white man we had one. You had one as a guest earlier this week. Man, he had a good term um mr rogan mr rogan yeah um virginia who um <laughs> he didn't see any problem with someone with a clean outfit or holding public office not at all man he had a term that described pretty much white privilege it was a it was a it was, it was a man um anyway they come up with these terms it doesn't describe the, the situation at all i'm gonna mute my line guys because I'm, I'm lost now I'm trying to think of this word now that that's um man, what was the name of that term? That you have to remember. I feel like he he did I I was
19: trying to think back and I feel like he did use quite a few uh words to obfuscate. Uh, I was trying to think back uh to because I feel like I repeated uh one of the ones that he used, uh, to, you know, get away from the truth of the matter. Uh yeah, I have to think back. I think the last Sunday seems like years uh, have passed since Sunday but Mr. Grogan should be in the archives talking about the whole uh, fiasco in uh, Virginia Uh, incidentally uh, Mr. Smalley I think uh, is how you say his name apologies if i mispronounced I forgot he did get a lot of attention from well-known individuals, uh, politicians, and what have you. So absolutely, uh, I think that will be used as a weapon uh, if it turns out that this uh, is some sort of false report uh, or what have you. It won't be uh, that the quote-unquote gay community uh, is blamed and that, oh, yeah, we can't listen to it. It'll be black people, Negras just come out and make things up uh, to smear our president 'cause they said he had the uh they had, you know, said make America great and all that. Uh and they just make up anything about racism. That's all they do. Uh so it that absolutely I think that will be something that will be used to try to discredit any black person uh, who makes a report that they are a victim uh of racism. Uh other folks, uh if you have comments, question Hello. Yes ma'am.
3: Hi, thanks for taking my call again. Um the was Jenkins, the last I heard, the hotel settled with her with her family for I guess some amount. But didn't claim liability. You know, they always do that. That's the last I heard about it. Um but I guess and I guess expected but sad or not sad. or sad news. Um, when you put out I guess the challenge to find a book about positive positive images of of black men, I thought I had found it. I was really excited. It's it's a lie. It's called Men We Perish. It was edited by a black woman, Brooke, Brooke Stevens. She's changed her name to some I don't know, maybe some African or Muslim name. Um, but when she when she edited this in round 1996 1997. And it says, men we cherish, African-American women praise the men in their lives. I was real excited. I was like, I found it. Yay. Um, it's, it's a lie. Because even in the, preface, in the preface, this is the paragraph. Now, again, the book is called Men We Cherish, African-American Women Praise the Men in Their Lives. That's the name. On the front cover, available at libraries, a lot of places. I got it in the library here. This paragraph, the portraits here are not always flattering, and few, if any, fall into the quote-unquote father-knows-best romanticized image of white fatherhood that television offered us in the 50s. Yet it is a valid perspective because it is written by the people who know these men best, the women who have been loved by them and have shared their struggle to achieve comfortable, respectable lives, and who have endured the same denigrated experiences of racism? These are the memories of the daughters, wives, sisters, mothers, and best friends who have been influenced by their presence. Oh my! Like, What'd you write the book for, then? I'm looking for all happy. That's what I'm looking for. It says praise. It's supposed to. I'm looking for flattery. Isn't that what praise does? Maybe I don't. I mean, I'm not a wordsmith, but. Uh, They're flattering with praise and all that. And then they have some some women, a couple that I have heard of. B. B Moore Campbell, I know that is I would say a somewhat popular author. And the Delaney sisters and I think a lot of people may have heard about them. Some of these other people I never heard of. But that's a I was I was upset. I was lied to, I was led astray. The library land. I didn't land on the library the library landed on me <laughs> oh man Woo!
19: wow that is uh, I'm sorry you were led astray uh, in the library that that can especially happen if you are looking for a book that has something positive to say about black people apparently especially black male was like woo. You can be set up to disappointment in all kinds of ways. In fact, that that is seeming like the suspicion one to me. Anybody comes and says, oh, I got a book about how much I love black males. Whoa, whoa,
3: whoa, whoa, whoa. And I read – I'm sorry. I read one of the stories because this is supposed to be just a collection of little short stories. And the one man, the best thing he could do was this particular story, the best thing about him was he was able to play the piano by ear. He had divorced his wife. Was separated from the kids. They weren't his kids, but he still loved the kids, and he came and ate dinner with them. The best thing was he could play piano by ear. I was like, "This is ridiculous."
26: <laughs> that's Sam's character
19: from uh, Casablanca. That's what. That's all Sam could play the piano. That's all we need him for. Just play the piano and stand in ovation for Sam. Sam's character in Casablanca. Woo! just uh, so if, if anyone does find a better book that would be grant I did make that comment about the Seattle Public Library or at least the Capitol Hill branch they uh, had a display for black history month and they had 15 books for the display in the very front of the library this is the first thing that you see when the end of the library 14 of the books were authored by black females one book written by a black male. Not that I have a problem with black female authors. We have read many, many, many of them on the book club. I've quoted several of them uh, on today's broadcast. Uh, but I mean, one? One? That's the only one you can find is one black male author. I went and said something about it, and I think they added two, maybe three. Uh, but nothing nothing of balance uh, at all. Reading is still more important than watching Television and the Crown book. I think I mentioned the book that they had at the very, very top of the display, the new Negro classic, The Hate You Give. Uh, other folks have uh, commentary, questions, uh, suggestions that they wanted to share. Can I be Uh Yes, sir. Well, uh, hang one second. Uh, Henry in Chicago, Miss Tian. Tian, did you have commentary, ma'am?
3: yes i believe that word was willful neglect or willful ignorance
9: that that white gentleman
3: used that's
21: it
9: thomas in new
21: that's york it.
19: the
24: willful ignorance
19: isn't that it thomas in new york it was uh, gosh that was it I man i was
24: thinking so hard oh i gotta write that you.
19: yeah good memory Good memory willfully, and that's one of the common ones they say that on a regular basis willfully. him he spent a lot of time on that the willfully willfully ignorant coon man yes ma'am. did you have uh, more thank you so much for having a better memory than us
9: no I was um, I was just um, I wanted to give Thomas that our uh, word
19: much obliged help me out as well uh, Philip uh, Henry in Chicago sorry sir
21: oh, oh no problem um just wanted to uh first uh, uh wish everybody, uh including you guys, uh safe travels to uh Virginia. Uh hope everybody gets there safely, uh have reproductive time there and uh get back uh safely as well. Uh in in regards to the Kanika uh, Jenkins case, uh I I wasn't sure if that case was settled as the uh, previous uh female caller had said I, I may be wrong but because i knew the last I, I heard about it was the family was suing the hotel for 50 million dollars and i wasn't sure it maybe i might have missed it but i didn't read anything in regards to it being actually settled so but i know there was a lawsuit of 50 million dollars against the hotel um the uh the place where kanika jenkins uh, had had died so um uh, that's uh, that's all I wanted to add I mean my line
19: much obliged Henry in Chicago uh, see we have no it's hard to gauge let's we'll say 10 minutes left in the broadcast uh, again we will not be here for workplace racism this week or the book club and we have a new book we just finished incidents in the life of a slave girl uh, this past week all done glad I read that book uh, psh, glad I read that book uh, but we'll be moving on a uh, new book but we'll be starting it a week from Thursday so you can be thinking uh, about a book you would like to read hopefully one that already has an audiobook in existence that would be great or if there's a book you would like to read and you'd like to do the narration, great, let us know, and we should have a little time to think, and I'll let people know what the next book will be, but should be the next time we're on air. should be the Cal's 10-year anniversary yoga retreat if they have not run us out of the Commonwealth uh, by next Saturday. Uh, did other folks, questions, comments, suggestions? Can I be heard? Yes, sir.
27: Yeah, um I just wanted to add um uh more information about the shooting in Illinois. I'm not sure if anyone mentioned um they've been politicizing uh the the weapon that was used in the shooting. They were saying that he was a a felon who had a, a weapons permit even though he had a felony conviction and also that he'd had a laser sight On his weapon as well so I've been seeing um, them politicizing that uh, on top of everything else Uh, that's that's all I wanted to add I mean my line
19: Mm. armed and reckless Negroes in the Chicago area that's favorite thing to talk about in uh, what they call Chirac as they call it Uh, other folks any other comments questions they want to make sure they got in as we get ready to wind
24: things down i just want to say guys, some those empowerment zones the good thing about them is that we can also buy into the neighborhoods we live in if it's on one of the zones designated for an empowerment zone and even though it will be um, working against us we can somehow profit off of it working against us as opposed to just being kicked out, you know, you'll be kicked out with something in your pocket. Um, I think that um, the Democratic Party has been infiltrated the same way that the Republican Party was infiltrated by the Tea Party. Um, This um, Democratic Socialist, they were going to build the Amazon in Queens, um, supposed to provide thousands of jobs, and they also had worked out a deal to make sure that the people in the housing projects right next to it, which is Queensbridge Projects, the largest housing projects in America, with almost 7,000 residents and 96 buildings the huge projects, and um, they were supposed to be giving first dibs on some of these, but they said were going to be high-paying jobs, and um, this whole thing is... um, now, I've been scratched for um, some high-rise luxury apartment buildings, uh, which will not benefit these people at all. Um, and this was all done by these democratic socialists who just got there. I and mean, I thought that, wow, look at the power they were able to have, even with the so-called Latino at the front person, uh, that Cortez or Ortez, whatever her name is. I just thought that that was um, a, a tremendous Flow to that community because I thought it, either way they're going to put something there. It might as well be something there that's going to benefit the people that live there. And I meet myself because I
19: for sure I did see that them making the turnaround, deciding that they were not uh, going to do the project. Whites will do that at times as well. Uh, we're going to do this and then no, uh, changed our mind. We are not going. To do this, I do know they do have Amazon headquarters here in Seattle, and uh, I do know there are considerable number of folks who would say that it's not exactly the most beneficial thing uh, to happen. It can contribute to a lot of problems. Uh, Let's see, other folks have commentary that they want to share. Part of the sprawl, I think I saw an article recently, they were talking about uh, how to uh, build up your city and to not do it the way that Seattle did and uh, the Amazon headquarters was a part of that and making it a really uh, a city that has a lot of high-tech gadgetry and stuff, which Seattle does, uh, but it's also very expensive and difficult to live there particularly for non-white people which for sure is Seattle I think San Francisco they said the same thing about that area moved lots of the Negroes out of that area as well they didn't have as many niggers here to begin with and they still moved the small number that were here got moved out further south uh, any other comments questions folks wanted to make sure they get in hey,
9: Gus? Uh, oh go ahead I'm, I'm sorry sir just uh, quickly Gus uh, I know Thomas was just talking about the young basketball player here in um, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, So from what I can see, there currently now is this sort of uh, basketball player of the year. Um, There's this sort of uh, poll where you can vote and he'll get some sort of prize or what have you. Whichever Whichever high school basketball player wins this prize. And now there seems to be a, a huge push to give him this prize I guess that's supposed to be consolation uh, he also got an apology for what it's worth I'll meet my line thanks so. the
19: tacky apologies love it this this is another great illustration of uh, former President Barack Obama uh, and his uh, commentary that he has hoped that you know these young white people they're something special they are way better at this racism thing, and they handle it way better. Yeah, B G Q for President Obama as well, but I don't know which Y T team. The ones I've seen, they look pretty familiar. Uh, and speaking of tacky apologies, I thought that was it was it almost had the vibration of a racist joke. The Virginia legislator making this the week to apologize. For the state's history of white supremacy white terrorism uh, in the middle of black history month in the middle of the lieutenant governor black male uh, being accused of raping and sexual misconduct in the middle of the governor coon man not stepping down black blackface of the, the attorney general says all of this we want to pause and reflect on the number of negros that we have lynched and hope that we do not find any more Uh, lynching minstrel pictures in any of our state university yearbooks or other photographs, uh, family scrap albums, or anything else. But if that is found, we will apologize for that. Uh, We'll just go ahead and do that now in case that's found, and so you get two apologies for the price of one. That's the way it sounds. It's like super, super borderline just racist joke to make that this. Like that's something they could have done a long time ago. Had this been in the planning and you just decided to wait and do it, at this time, at this moment, yes, we'll stop and reflect on that. Any uh, other comments folks need to get in? Oh, uh, we had uh, – was that Henry in Chicago? Did you speak up, sir?
21: Yeah. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you real quickly. Uh, in the Sun-Times in regards to the Aurora shooting, um, they say – there's a sentence here that I was looking at that says, uh, Gary Martin was declared neutralized at 2.59 p.m. Uh, And neutralized is in quotations. What, I mean, I'm kind of suspecting what they're saying. What do you think that means?
26: I mean, that's,
19: that is a very sanitized way about talking about uh, ending a human life. I mean, you generally don't use that term Neutralize. You know that's that's a very removed way uh, of discussing uh, killed. I mean, he was shot and killed. (laughs) You know, like that's Mm -hmm. a very different way than said. Oh yeah, I pulled out my nine millimeter and I blew his brains out to say that we neutralized uh, the subject. The term uh, neutralize render ineffective or harmless by applying an opposite force or effect. See, that's a very scientific definition. The next uh, that's uh, disarm. The next one, now check this out. This is definition number four a euphemistic way of saying kill or destroy, especially in a covert or military operation. Wow. Wow. That would be the language of racism, white supremacy, wartime language. And he's supposed to be a civilian. I thought this was a civilian operation. Nope wartime terms and we find euphemistic ways of saying that we killed the negro. Because the first definitions don't even imply lethal the youth use of lethal force. It's just rendering something ineffective, harmless. Not even a person necessarily. It could be an object. And we, you know, aren't really talking about people with negroes, so, you know.
24: Anything else, folks, need to get in?
21: Folks satisfied. Um,
24: Guys, just to remember, just a reminder that we had the, uh, we played a clip before where we had, I think it was a high school basketball game for girls, and the whole, all the white people came in safari outfits, and then we had another clip where they were chanting, "Here's your daddy," or something to the effect of that. Um, also, uh, yeah, so that they're not, they're not getting better
19: absolutely absolutely the principal for the school for uh, where uh, Jalen Johnson this uh, child victim was abused said that we apologize and we're going to make this right I don't know what that would be but mm. uh, was there another person who had a comment they want to get in
9: Oh, uh, real quick Gus. they call that school nickel bag here okay so I mean clearly that principal is not I'm just saying, think about that. It's a school that they call Nickelback. I'm pretty sure they don't care about language directed at black children.
19: Wow. (laughs) right? Wisconsin, make it plain. (laughs) The great state of Wisconsin. Thank goodness Rob uh, was able to escape. Wow.
3: Mm,
19: mm, mm. Uh, Any other folks have comments that they wanted to get in? Everybody satisfied. Cannot believe it. We will not be back. I'm just. I am going to do some praying. I'm going to do some yoga and meditate uh, that I can get through TSA. I have a six. I think it's six twenty. Something very early on Wednesday morning. Uh, I'll be flying into uh, Virginia. So hopefully there won't be no problems. The weather looks like there will be no more snow in these parts. So shouldn't be any flight delays or anything should be there Wednesday afternoon sometime uh, in Virginia. Uh, I'll try to post and let folks know that uh, I'm there safely, and then the retreat will start on Thursday. We should be on the air Saturday if we have Wi-Fi and all that. I think it should be there uh, for us to broadcast so that you all can hear uh, what has been going down at the retreat and see that we have been surviving and I hope practicing counter-racism so that it hasn't been – fisticuffs conflict anything of the nature constructive investment of time and energy for at least it'll be three days by that point so looking forward to it hoping for safe travels for everyone and uh, we'll let folks know once we have touched down in the comp Richmond my goodness woo! anyway uh, thanks for your patience uh, for the folks this evening. Hopefully we'll have no tech issues next weekend, and uh, we'll be on time, 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, I don't think I have ever in the 10-year history, this will be the first time doing a cow's broadcast on Eastern time. We have done Central before. In Wisconsin, no less, <laughs> I forgot. We have done central time before but first time doing a program on East Coast time I hope you can survive the massive time difference Woo, man uh, with that drop an email if you have questions comments limited number and I mean very limited number of cows yoga retreat t-shirts will be available you can drop an email about that as well uh, with that <clears throat> much obliged and we will talk in VA sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism let's do all that we can to preserve our brain computers hopefully so that we can crank out solutions to solve this problem immediately in addition to being sober let's be buckled up every single time we are in a vehicle passenger or driver let's do all that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no creator another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in.
26: Nigga, you so brainwashed.
23: I'm a victim, your brother.
26: problem. you a victim.
2: Uh, I'm up. a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>